Hello and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guests are Wilkel Distance and James Lindsay. This is part of an ongoing series of live streams with James and Wilkel. We tackle a lot of the postmodern theories, critical theories, and activist culture, the underpinning and undergirding ideas that inform the activist behavior that is nominally called wokeness or intersection and that is populating many an institution, including education and media. Do follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce, vocal at vocal underscore distance, and James Lindsay at Conceptual James. That's where all the tweets that are fit to print are being printed by yours truly and my friends, who I will now introduce you to. Without further ado, here is vocal and james so what do you boys want to get into today yeah i was thinking we left off with uh we touched on uh what was his name a little bit of russell but um cyril i was wondering uh you know uh so we talk about postmodernism a whole lot but what's what else is there then analytic philosophy okay first principles james james's watery liberalism I have watery liberalism. No, it's steel spine liberalism. What are we well, talking? I want about? the strawberry slurpee of liberalism. Who asked for turf the <laughs> Occupy Wall Street movement? Oh, strawberry. That's slurpees. a good question. Astroturfing. You guys wanted to find astroturfing. Have you guys been watching that? Are you astroturfers or are you weaponized by astroturfers? Not to my knowledge. Um, they can send checks if they want. I don't really take to artificial uh, planting on my my territory, but people are willing. You know, I'm totally happy to take their money and not do what they want me to do with it. Um, so there is that. So astroturfing is when you have the appearance of a grassroots movement, and usually what happens is there is actually a grassroots movement, and then big money, usually in the form of foundation dollars, jumps in on that gives it lots of money sometimes they directly say you know this money is contingent upon these strings more often what they do is they show up and they say we love what you do here's a bunch of money keep doing it and then next year when it's like um you want some more money you know it's like well let's make some changes to make you a little more effective and we think you should take these kinds of directions and you probably already invested some of that money but the point is that you have these kind of foundations they have their own agendas they have lots of money behind them that will come in and kind of um, prop up either it can be a little more organic, but they, they might they might take direction or, or dictate direction of, of a grassroots movement, or they might actually just start propping up the things that are pointing in the directions that they want. Uh, so you might have with the Occupy Wall Street thing, and I don't know who would have been funding that. And it's a good research question somebody should be diving into. You might have say woke people. Who you know, if you get that inter- intersectional hot mess happening, everybody's going to start fighting with each other. So you say, hey, intersectional people, Occupy looks like a site that would be great for you. Here's like a million dollars to go show up and be there. And, oh, yeah, you know, I'd love to take a year off work and here's a million dollars. Probably they would have done it for like like $11. But uh, that's what astroturfing is anyway. Uh, it's probably the case. It's really uh, kind of a hilarious, hilarity um there were a lot of kind of big uh organizations that Koch brothers would be one that was in particular 
uh, back in 2008 and 9 that are associated with having funded the Tea Party, but their Tea Party was a grassroots organization before the Koch brothers got involved. And then it took, from what people who are involved in it originally have told me, it took a decidedly more corporate direction after corporate money started dumping into it. And so the left is all pissed about the Koch brothers, but the Koch brothers probably broke up the populist movement and turned it uh, uh, in a different direction quite early on, uh, which would be in alignment with leftist agendas in some sense, except not to the corporate direction. So it's like everything's a little more shadowy, but it's shadowy money going into grassroots organizations to make them now fake grass, in other words, astroturf, that's being laid down by uh, big money. James, one quick comment. The chat is saying that there's something up with your audio. It sounds okay to me, but it might be that your good microphone is not uh, turned on or it's just picking it's up some... possible. One second. Sort of secondary. The That's probably... The AstroTurf yeah. that I first encountered, I mean, knowingly encountered, was Reddit in 2016, which is very uh, burning Bernieville. And Bernie was really strong. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if it was after, I, it was at a certain point, it was very obvious that things switched to Hillary Clinton. And there was a lot of I think there was even a news article that said that one of the super PACs for Hillary Clinton is spending millions of dollars to just pave all of social media. And that set the conditions. I think that that set the conditions for Reddit turning into a steaming pile of useless uh, propaganda, angry, ranting, one-sided uh, baloney that it is now, except for certain uh, subreddits and stuff. But all the main subreddits are incredibly political and all in one direction. And I think that the astroturfing of it killed it as a more or less balanced, even though cesspit, but still a balanced set cesspit. Yeah, that would be definitely an example of that. Um, and my audio should be better. I forgot yeah, that I had excellent. to do a thing the other day from the hotel, and I didn't have my suite anchored to my uh, desk microphone, so I had to use a different microphone. So props for pointing out that I sounded like crap. So now I hopefully sound better. But the thing is, if, if you can get an idea or a set of ideas that are infectious enough and a script that makes people feel strongly enough about repeating the same stuff over and over again, they will even be tricked into not realizing that they're just reproducing the script over and over again. Then you don't really have to pay much money into it. You just prop it up here and there strategically, and it kind of goes on its own. So I think that the, uh, that kind of astroturfing is the astroturfer's wet dream. That's right. These are not the narratives you're looking for. Um, and that actually, you know, is kind of the sort of thing that the postmodernists, I know we weren't going to talk about the postmodernists, but that's kind Let's of the thing it. that the postmodernists were talking about is that, you know, these interests will step in. Or even you could say that the critical theorists were talking about this, too, is that other, you know, interests that want to control the narrative will step in and they will make sure that what they want to have become the dominant narrative will become the dominant narrative. And then that creates this sort of legitimation by consensus or in uh, Lyotard's words, legitimation by pyrology. And then people will believe this and it will become truth, even though it's not true. It was propped up by some outside interests that wanted to maintain power. And so the difference between the neo-Marxists and the, uh, or critical theorists, I guess, and the postmodernists is how they would view that power as working. 
So the neo-Marxists would have viewed that power as working as I just described, that people step in and they are setting the tone and they're going to kind of just stay active enough to make sure that the narrative keeps going in the same direction. These are Herbert Marcuse's so-called heteronymous interests. Um, so power is kind of being pressed into the situation, even to the degree that they were taking up with propaganda uh, by active agents where the postmodernists would say that what would happen is that these people would come in and they would change the social conditions and then people would create kind of social groups or social norms that you're just going to repeat certain views. Those are the right views. Everything else is the wrong views. And so they're going to kind of socialize people into speaking and acting and talking in certain ways. So power flows through everybody rather than being imposed by the so-called powerful interests. And there's probably some fact of the, of the matter that both of those things actually occur or they occur as needed, but as kind of pure philosophies, Neo-Marxism would say that, you know, the powerful interests of society are interested in keeping things going in a certain way, and here's what they do to maintain it. And the postmodernists would say, oh, well, it all through how it's okay to talk about things. The discourses that they, they would come in, and they would set the discourses, they would engineer the discourses, and then that becomes the norms that everybody participates by. And that's the thing you're describing is kind of the wet dream is you don't really have enough, even have to pay. You just get people to start doing the thing, and the thing becomes kind of self-fulfilling and self, uh, self-generating. And then isn't that kind of ideal? That's kind of what people who are anti woke or you know pro liberal kind of want. That everybody wants that to happen in their own direction. They correct. Everybody wants I mean, to have a condition. Everybody who wants like a particular like outcome, I guess, would want that or wants a particular narrative pushed. I find myself not particularly wanting that. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I don't want to set rules of discourse for people at all myself. I want people to have accurate understandings of various ideas and topics and talk about those from their own perspective. So this is where I get sort of alienated from these kind of power game based analyses. I maybe and it's maybe it's a secret sauce to my success, but I just don't think that way. Um, So maybe you have outed yourself, and I can now critical theory, critical Benjamin Boyce theory, and maybe? discover that deep inside you actually just want people to think the way that you want them to think. Well, to I, I want, I would like a certain set of, of behaviors, right? I would like a certain set of very basic behaviors, like a Ten Commandments of online discourse or something like that. Just like a, you know, oh, okay, yeah. rules of genteel. Yeah, some norms are pretty good. Norms are all right. I mean, that's okay why you're wearing that. a shirt, right? Well, I wasn't sure if Wokel was wearing pants when he got up a second ago, and I was offended. I think that it's just one piece of cloth. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that is why I'm wearing a shirt, but it's not why I brought an axe to the discussion. You have to put it in front of your face. There we go. <laughs> Wokel, what was your you, – you, you had a twitchy thought. You grabbed a book. Just uh, give us a sign when yeah, you're ready to um, – if I can find it, I have to find a, I have to find a quote from the book Beautiful Trouble. Oh no, that's that right there is the handbook of disasters, Beautiful Trouble, and it's really funny because you hear these politicians. I just saw a thing talking about because you know we had George Floyd Day, rest in power, and so forth, and so we had George Floyd Day this week, and on George Floyd Day I saw politicians 
saying things like, we made good trouble last year. We made good trouble. So they're talking about this good trouble. And, of course, beautiful trouble is kind of an artistic extension of that in terms of the terminology. But they mean something really specific. These activists, that's the they, mean something very specific, whether we want to have them as woke activists or whatever activists. They mean something very specific by good trouble. And what they mean is that they're going to disrupt and dismantle the existing systems or subvert the existing systems. So they're going to cause trouble for the purpose of the greater good that they believe that they have the ability to bring into the world. So you have good trouble is something that it's really, it should be very concerning when you hear politicians in a liberal society like the United States yeah. repeating concepts that are actual agitprop for liberationist and, and therefore really kind of quasi-communist activity. Um, and then people are like, yes, queen, to to literally like disrupt and dismantle hmm. without necessarily knowing what they're getting involved in. That phrase, disrupt and dismantle, uh, was heavily employed by the Office of Equity. Uh, well, the, the, the office that was setting up the Office of Equity in Washington state government. They That's have right. formed that. Equity equals it. And equity means disrupt and dismantle. Nobody really understands that, but we understand that. So do you have a sense of what that actually means other than a flashy kind of sexy term? We're going to sh get shit done. This is beautiful. Trouble. Mean, These things sounds done? like, uh, okay. <laughs> disrupt means you have something going on. The operation of society, the running of an institution, um, and you're going to get in the way of it, whether it's by throwing sand in the gears, whether it's by turning it upside down, whether it's by showing up and yelling and that so-called heckler's veto, whether it's going to be by blowing air horns. You're going to take whatever it is that's going on and you're going to disrupt that activity so that the normal operation of an institution, normal operation of a city, of a society, of a college or of a state in this case cannot continue as it has been going on. There will be no longer any normal operation. So disrupt means means that dismantle means that something is you know th there are say institutional uh pieces in place that keep that system running the way that it does and th that's going to have to be taken completely apart and then obviously uh something will replace it and the idea of course with the equity activists is what will replace it will be something under their control because mm -hmm. they're going to reimagine for example the possibilities of the thing and that itself is its own special term but we can come to that in a second so disrupt and dismantle is not just like a, oh we're going to do stuff it means the system itself is operating so we have to so you can think of it like a car going down the street and we're going to knock the wheels off of it we're going to disrupt the motion of the car or we're going to get in the path of the car so they have to put on the brakes if it's like stopping traffic or whatever we're going to disrupt the normal operation of things and then we're going to try to figure out how to take apart the system itself and replace it with something completely different now when they talk about what they're going to replace it with they're necessarily vague because i could explain at length going into the hegel stuff that i've been dropping this week um why they're necessarily vague oh yeah dropped it in there like an atomic bomb just wait till it goes public tomorrow people are going to lose their marbles but um they really go crazy when you start talking hegel GWF Hegel, baby. It's the heart and soul of the whole thing, but um, and of the religion, as a matter of fact. But when when they talk about uh, disrupt and reimagining a reimagining. system, 
Yeah. When they talk about reimagining a system, what they're actually talking about is that the imaginary is the the full extent. This is a concept that they have within within a lot of theoretical discourse, the imaginary. So the imaginary is the total extent of what people are capable of thinking about. And so when they say that they want to reimagine systems, what they want to say is that everything that we've thought so far about how systems should be created, how they should operate, what we should do, how they should be implemented, institutions, whatever they are, needs to be completely removed. And we're going to just start reimagining a new thing. And that's necessary. So we're going to go outside of the entire list of conceivable concepts that we already have. We're going to go into a new list of concepts that, that they're going to create and control. Usually, with, and this is an actual phrase that some of, uh, some of their activists have used is that we'll build the plane while we fly it, which is one to really kind of think about for five minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I get the build the ship as we sail, but build the plane as we fly is a little bit more advanced. What they really mean, though, is we're, we're going to build the ship uh, or the plane as we crash it, it sounds like. That's right. Yeah. And the reason that it has to be vague is because, as I did a podcast recently, communism doesn't know how. They don't know how. They don't know how it's going to work. But the reason for that, if we want to dip into the Hegel and the mystery of it all, is because they actually believe that society's perfect, but it's corrupted. It's covered up basically in like a shell of, of, of uh, corruption and systemic power and evil and False problematics, if you will. And that if you just put yeah yeah exactly and you start peel that away you get you you identify all the contradictions you identify all the problematics you take away all of that through this process that the in the Germans called Aufheben which is we've talked about before it's the idea of keeping yet destroying and yet going beyond it has like a triple meaning apparently in German yeah. uh, which which Hegel thought was a mystical very mystical word and very useful for his <laughs> speculative mystical philosophy. Um, if you can just peel all that away, then the seed of the perfect society is there to grow out of that. It's like the seed of utopia exists within the corrupted world. So if you can just identify and peel back all the corruption, the seed will sprout yeah. and utopia will blossom and we'll figure it out when we get there. So what they're saying is they don't have the slightest idea how this is going to happen. But if they just have, as Marx put it, ruthless criticism of everything that exists, of all the problematics, then they can Expose that seed so that it'll germinate and bloom, and then you'll go from, if from Marx, capitalism to socialism to to communism and the utopia, or for people like Marcuse, you'll enter into a liberated state that's past all of the uh, oppressions and all of that. Um, and for the woke, they might they might say, although post as a prefix means something quite specific, they might say a post-racial society, or that we're going to enter into a you know, a society where systems of racism have been completely uh, unmade, not eliminated, unmade. And there's a key difference to that. So this is really kind of like disrupt and dismantle have a lot going on behind them. It's not just like, let's get some stuff done. It's let's break the current system. Stop its current action. That's disrupt and break it. That's dismantle. That would work if what we're talking about is a fireplace. We're gonna we're gonna stop the fire. We're gonna rebuild the fireplace. But what we're actually dealing with at this level of complexity of society is a nuclear reactor. They think that they can just break down the nuclear reactor and then build a better one. There's a lot of things so, that are running that will affect that. I'd like to toss something in here if I could. So I actually did a thread on this, and uh, I it was a little while ago, and I said. Just at the top, I said, disrupt, dismantle, deconstruct. Wokies say that all the time because in woke world, to disrupt, dismantle, and deconstruct refers to a specific set of strategies. So, disruption. 
the woke think of oppression in terms of systems, social systems, legal systems, economic systems, and especially systems of language and communication. They think these systems oppress people, and this is key, even if we don't realize it. So the woke think we must stop these systems from being allowed to continue or function. We must disrupt the functioning of these systems. A disruption is anything that prevents a system the woke deem oppressive from going about its everyday functioning. So there's two types of disruption. There's a physical disruption and a conceptual disruption. A physical disruption is when the woke physically interfere with something and attempt to hijack, ruin it, or stop it. So that might be something like pulling the fire alarm during a Jordan Peterson talk, something like that. A conceptual disruption is to say or do something that intervenes in a narrative or discourse. So if during a testimony time at church, someone got up during their turn and told the church that they were racist, they might have disrupted racism in the church. That's how they would have thought of that. So, a conceptual disruption occurs anytime someone interrupts a narrative or discourse by injecting wokeness as the new narrative or discourse or challenging that narrative or discourse by, by, by throwing themselves into the discourse to disrupt the way that that discourse per- perpetuates itself or reinscribes itself into the functioning of society. A physical disruption occurs when someone does something that hijacks, destroys, or derails an oppressive system. So, cutting down power lines might be a way of disrupting. Um, Interfering with the talk, heckler's veto. So, now, dismantle. Dismantling is something as the woke is... Dismantling is something the woke do to systems or anything the woke say is a system or institutions. Okay. Uh, an incomplete list of things the woke might say they want to dismantle are capitalism, governments, universities, churches, businesses, the police, etc., etc. To dismantle something is to take the thing apart so it can no longer function at all. So you want to disrupt it. So let's use the analogy of a car. I want to disrupt the car. I'm going to throw a spike belt down so I disrupt the car by stopping it. Once I've, once I've shredded its tires and it's stopped, then I can dismantle the car once it's stopped and take it apart. So first you want to disrupt the function, then you want to take the thing apart, right? Dismantling can take a few different forms. An example of dismantling would be if a woke group took over a church by voting themselves onto the board and then voted to fire the pastor and then voted to get rid of the statements of faith and then sold the building. They would have dismantled the church. Hmm. Or um, if a group gets themselves voted in as the town council, defunds the police, fires the officers, and then repeals the laws that gave the police their power. That would be to dismantle the police. There are violent ways to dismantle things as well. So if a group wanted to violently dismantle a 13th century monarchy, they might loot the palace, break the crown and scepter, and kidnap the king. Okay? So, again, notice there are two ways of doing all of this. There's always the discourse way, which is to destroy the narrative or to take apart or to to abolish the Constitution or vote out the laws. And then there's the the violent way, violent takeovers, right? There's always always multiple ways of doing this. Mm -hmm. The woke often disrupt institutions and systems they want to dismantle. When they lack the power to fully dismantle something, they may opt to disrupt it where they can, Right? Because they, they might not be able to, to fully rip it apart. So they might not be able to dismantle the university, but they can pull the fire alarm during Jordan Peterson's talk. We can cut the cord to the microphone. We can disrupt it. Um, and deconstruction is the thing that they do on the discourse, 
Deconstruction is the way the woke attack, subvert, and undermine the meaning of the concepts, words, language, ideas, art, discourses, texts, symbols, and anything else we use to convey meaning. This is done to destroy the conceptual entities that we use to build the systems and to build our society. What the woke see is the systems of oppression, right? So we have a bunch of ideas, thoughts, beliefs that we're going to use in building our society, and the woke want to attack those concepts and, and show those concepts to be meaningless, inadequate, um, openly harmful, otherwise useless. Yeah, they want to destroy those concepts. They want to deconstruct the meaning that we've built into them. So they will try to redefine our language, change the meaning of words, reinterpret the law, reinterpret art and media, uh, all to say it's bigoted. And usually this takes the form of trying to find new ways of interpreting the ideas, concept theories, etc., and leveraging the new interpretations against the old interpretations to create a conflict which they can say will only be solved via adopting their woke worldview. Um, but it can also take the form of mockery and parody to try and trivialize something, right? So a deconstruction always operates at the level of meaning and discourse. Deconstruction seeks to destroy the meaning of ideas because doing so sucks the power out of ideas so that they can't function. And whatever is held together by those ideas, in this case our society, starts to come apart. And the woke want that so they can have their, their little revolution. So a, a, a brief recap here is you first, you disrupt, so that's hijack, ruin, or stop systems or institutions from functioning, disrupting a talk, um, blocking access to yeah. a meeting, uh, yeah, things like that. Dismantle to take apart and destroy an institution or system that they deem oppressive. So that might be, again, you vote yourself onto the board of the local church and then um, vote out all the, the statements of faith, and then to deconstruct, and that's how the woke attack the meaning of conceptual entities we use to build a society. If you put all three of those things together, you get a potent cocktail of tools and strategies for tearing down society from the inside, which is exactly what the goal of woke is. They literally want a complete revolution, right? Does that does that all? Yeah, does James, that all clear yeah. to everyone. <clears throat> you yeah, shared that Beaverton. You shared that uh, like a, like some sort of teacher training or something about uh, public school teachers in a training uh, in Beaverton, Oregon, just today. And it was exactly yeah. once you start to see that this is the pattern of behavior, why are they spending so much time trying to interrupt everything by trying to they literally are saying we need to inject this stuff into every single activity that every single person's doing. When you're grading a test, you need to stop doing that and reevaluate this through a racist, anti-racist lens. So every single thing that you do is literally interrupted by this cognitive structure of anti-racism, which is, I guess, not necessarily defined, but it just basically really gums up the ability for the institution as a whole to do anything other than perpetuate these ideas that themselves are just designed to gum up everything. That's right. And so with with deconstruction, because that was like a super awesome summary, a word that Vocal dropped in there was subvert. And that's really the point of a deconstruction is to subvert the activity that's actually going on. And you hear them talk about subversion or being uh, or seeking to, to subvert systems or, or whatever. And it's a kind of a more pessimistic approach because uh, with disrupt and dismantle, there's almost this assumption that you have the power to disrupt a thing or you have the power to take it apart. Right. It requires you to be able to apply power to stop something that's already happening or to take something apart that exists. With subverting, it's kind of grosser. It's like getting inside, and as Wokel said, it's rearranging the meaning. Um, 
and changing the meaning of the terms that are being used. So where he gave the example, you know, in a church that disrupting racism in the church might step up and have somebody say, you know, don't you think that was a little bit racist? And all of a sudden it shocks everybody, it disrupts the flow of the, the dialogue that was occurring. Uh, that's disruption, of course, dismantle, you know, you take over, you start voting people out, you change the entire structure. Subverting would be to take, say, for example, the scripture that the, the, that the sermon is based upon and start asking unsettling questions about what those terms really might mean. A great kind of example, you could look at all three of these in kind of one lens, would be, because uh, I've given this one before, so I've thought about it a little bit, is the is the Fourth Amendment, which prevents the illegal search and seizure of property in the United States. So individuals have their property protected from government search and seizure, but it doesn't apply to stolen property. So a subversion there would, would be to come in and say, well, isn't in some sense all property really stolen because it was produced by the labor theory of value? So somebody's labor went into this and they weren't properly compensated, so it was actually stolen, or we made it on stolen land, or it was built off of a slaveocracy, and that the foundations of the entire economy were stolen from black people. And so yeah. where, you know, disrupting the Fourth Amendment would say, you know, come in and say, you know, we're going to take the uh, we're going to halt the application of this in certain circumstances, and dismantling it would be that we're going to get rid of the amendment entirely. Subverting would come in and say, let's change the meaning of the words or the concepts that are being employed so that the Fourth Amendment might remain completely intact, and yet we're going to interpret it completely differently now because we've changed the meanings underlying the things that are involved. And so, for example, if you know Harvard University wants to come out and say repeatedly that it exists on stolen land that they want to acknowledge, maybe the federal government should just seize all of Harvard's land because it's all stolen and the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect them any longer from that. Uh, but it's scarier if they start saying that basically under, say, Marx's labor theory of value – that everything is essentially stolen, or under the 1619 Project, that the entire economy of the United States was stolen from slavery, or from the slaves, actually, by forcing them to do labor. So everything, in some sense, is really stolen. Therefore, now there's this justification to not just say we should pay reparations, but to seize people's financial resources and reparate with them, because technically it was stolen in the first place. Um, and that's a subversion of the concepts. And you'll notice that it requires very little power to subvert a concept. All it requires is to kind of be like the little devil that pops up on your shoulder and asks what seems to be a very point-missing and impertinent question. Well, it does that's take, really the heart of it. It does take consensus insofar as you need enough people in power to affect that. That's right. It, it, it operates through soft power. Um, and that's why disrupt and dismantle, like I was describing, the power, the the beliefs about power between critical theory or neo-Marxism earlier, they think of it one way that's very disrupt and dismantle, whereas postmodernists saw this as very discourses-oriented and very social consensus-oriented, and therefore they wanted to create conditions under which they can engineer control through discourse engineering, as our friend Mike Nana refers to it. That's his brilliant Mikey's, term for this. Mikey's in the chat. Is he? Good yeah. for him. Mike, Shout out to Mike Discourse Nana. engineering. We're going to get this into the mainstream, man. Uh, so discourse engineering, though, what they want to do is they want to take control of the way that meaning and concepts are are used so that they can um, create social consensus that allows that soft power, that soft social power that works through everybody instead of kind of top down. Black Lives Matter showing up and blocking a road is not power working through all the people, Right. Black Lives Matter convincing everybody, on the other hand, well, that it's the power of frustration working through everybody. 
Well, I mean, it requ- it's a form of just a straight application of power, right, to show up and block the highway. Mm-hmm. It's another thing entirely, however, to come in and step in and say, well, the highway really, you know, was built off of, you know, the labor of somebody that had it stolen from them. So we have every right to do this or to come in and say that what we're actually doing is we're we're um, challenging the racism that's perpetuated by the highway system in and of itself. Uh, so to, to get people to go along with it, so to get people to paint Black Lives Matter Plaza down the street and then later, I guess, pave over that because mission accomplished or whatever, uh, that's more of a subversive soft power trying to get, like you said, trying to get that consensus around to build this idea. Oh, yeah, maybe this like right now, if I guarantee you, if Biden administration stepped in and said, Stanford, your land is stolen land. We're taking it back. Stanford would all of a sudden have an army of lawyers saying, wait a minute. Not going to happen. But if you can get enough people to believe that first. Yeah. Okay. Now you have the consent, the, 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 the pyrology, the, the consensus necessary to, to where Stanford won't have any ability to stand on its own two feet. They bring out their lawyers and everybody just says, oh, those lawyers are racist. And enough people believe it, it goes. Of course, that's what we've seen play out. And we've also, I think in my, I've used the word play out in a clever double meaning there. Uh, I think we've also see it, seen it be, start to play out. Uh, like people are sick of it, and people are seeing You've been through saying it now. That. You've been saying, yeah, that. I'm starting to get the impression. And we should talk about this actually about the top down and bottom up, and the inside and outside strategy, and what I think's going on with that. Um, but can I don't want to steal total thunder in? yet. Yeah, go. No, I just want to toss something in. Uh, this is also um, something that you said there. You said there's the the straight application of power. And then there's the discourse power. Sometimes those are layered together. Mm-hmm. Blocking a road to force a negotiation so that you can get into the discourse in order to subvert it, right? Yep. So what we might do is I might say, I'm going to block this road. And then I'm going to just, we're just going to not move. And why are you blocking the road? To force a negotiation. Well, why are you forcing a negotiation? Because if I can force a negotiation with me, there has to be terms of the negotiation. And I can subvert those terms. And then I can meme myself into the discourse. Because as soon as someone says, why did you do that? My answer is getting into the discourse, right? So this is part and parcel of how all of this works. The entire thing for them, and James hit on it when he talked about discourse engineering, their entire goal is to engineer the thought and the conceptual structures of society. Because in the same way we think, you know, politics is downstream of culture, they would say society is downstream of ideas and of thought. And we think in language. We use language, ideas, theories, concepts, texts, in order to communicate ideas and to teach ideas, to to form consensus to create institutions. If they can control the language, you're a you're a hop, skip, and a jump away from controlling thought, which is really what they're after. They want to engineer the limits of the discourse. They want to control the Overton window. That's what they want. So everything that they do is geared toward controlling the discourse. And They'll do it by any means necessary. It does not matter. This has been playing out in the free speech kind of debate about the bills that are being passed against critical theory. 
I recently mm. saw somebody say, because there was a a diversity training that was supposed to happen at a high school, a mandatory diversity training. At I think it was BHS High School. I can't remember what it was called. And parents found out who was doing the diversity training and why. And it was very standard white privilege, patriarchy, woke theory. And parents called up and demanded that this training be taken out of the high school. And it was. And so the training got canceled. In, in a literal sense, there was a mandatory training that was supposed to occur, and the mandatory training got canceled. And so these people were saying, look, this is chilling free speech. And I sat there, and I just thought, wait, you guys have turned this on its head. That's a mandatory training by the state. <laughs> the people have a right to protest against anything that the state does. Hmm. So when they say there's a chilling effect, what they mean is if the people can cancel the the social justice training because they don't like the wokeness, that shows displeasure with social justice and wokeness generally and then might make social justice and woke people reticent to go out and implement their view. And so the view, what they're saying there – because chilling of free speech, when we talk about this, we're usually talking about the government using power to try and shut people up. But that's not what happened here. It wasn't that the government came in and said, we're going to shut you up. It's the people came and said to the government, you're not going to do this. You're not going to mandate this training. It wasn't a volunteer thing. This wasn't a public university holding an optional um, hmm. you know, colloquium or something like this. Hmm. This was a mandatory training that the parents – got canceled because the parents didn't want the state to do that now if the state wants to spend one dollar saying that the sky is blue the people have a right to demand transparency about why they spent the dollar and whether or not they think the sky is blue because the government is run by the people right so the view here is when they're talking about chilling of speech what they're saying is look you've shown displeasure toward our woke diversity training and that's going to chill speech well because to them if anything anything that is pushing back on wokeness even if it's perfectly legitimate and i pointed this out i said look the government doesn't have a right to compel listening. And if parents want to cancel something, parents are allowed to cancel something. It's their money. And they can vote you out if you don't do it. So if the parents demand that a school board do something and the school board doesn't do it, the parents have every right to vote people out. Right? It's That's, that's mandated state speech with a captive audience. And yet they said, well, this is going to chill speech otherwhere. And they said, these bills that are being passed are going to chill speech. All right. How are they going to chill speech? Is it a government crackdown? No, it's a parental crackdown on what the government is teaching. And so the concept here is that when we talk about freedom of expression with respect to something like the First Amendment, but compelled belief is absolutely out, um, cracking down on speech for political reasons outside of time, place, and manner restrictions is absolutely out. I mean, the, the First Amendment is very, very, very robust. So when we're talking about chilling speech, having parents come in and say, you're not allowed to mandate the teaching of a particular worldview, you're not allowed to mandate a training that includes those ideas, that's not the chilling of speech. That's parents saying, you're not entitled to a captive audience on our dime. 
right? So does does everyone see does everyone see how that worked? Because what they're thinking of the chilling of the speeches, the way that the speech is chilled is by the social disapproval expressed by the parents when the parents say no. That's not the chilling of speech in having the government demonstrate the power and the willingness to arrest dissenters. Those are two different things. In one case, the speech is chilled by the government's willingness to erect, to arrest things, and in the other speech, it's chilled via social disapproval. And those are two different things. And do you see how those things get mixed together? And part of what I want to do is with all of these bills that are being passed – I, I want I want people to be able to see that the bills, at least the ones I defend, are not ones where they're throwing ideas out or censoring university professors. That's abhorrent. Those bills should be cut up. And I've said on Twitter a number of times yeah, that the that. that the the people who write the bills should be consulting, should be following the advice and the public um, uh, comments by the Foundation for the Individual Rights in Education, the Fire thefire.org, and should be allowing freedom of speech and should be curtailing anything that has freedom of expression. That being said, parents do have a right to decide, parents and voters do have a right to decide what is in the curriculum. And being hired as a teacher doesn't, is, how can I put this? Freedom of expression does not mean that by virtue of becoming a teacher, you are now allowed to use your teaching position as a soapbox to forward a particular ideology or to present one particular ideology as truth or to indoctrinate. So parents have every right to say, we don't want you to present wokeness, critical theory, Christianity, Evolution. Buddhism, to, yeah, to present them as truth. There is right. Now, you might say, well, what about creationism? Well, separation of church and state means you can't present creationism as truth, right? But neither is the teacher allowed to get up in the middle of the classroom and say, there is no God, you must become an atheist. Or Or to dock marks to students who are religious or whatever else, right? So, in... So, so the problem that's created here, the reason why this is so fine-grained a distinction is because what the woke do is they teach the teachers to teach all of the curriculum through the lens of wokeness. Yeah. So that everything that gets taught gets taught through the lens of wokeness, which is why you have to add additional and more robust um, curriculum guides and legislation to be able to say – Wait a second, when you teach math and you say 1 plus 1 equals 2, you can't use as your example all of the racist Americans equals 200 million. All of the anti-racists equal 100 million. How many more how many racists must be converted to anti-racism before we have a properly functioning democracy in America. And you can't and that's our math problem. Like you're yeah. not allowed to hijack the math problem by doing that. Or if somebody says, Today we're gonna learn about technology, you can hijack that real quick too. Someone says, The computer was a great invention, and you say, Okay, who can afford a computer? Who can't? Who benefits? And and then you're off to the races about social inequality and you can teach wokeness, right? And you can just weave it into the curriculum by teaching everything through that lens, which yeah. is why parents are saying you can't do that. And when the people are crying free expression, 
they're saying I as a teacher should be allowed to have yeah. a certain amount of control over my classroom. But that doesn't mean you can take your free time or your personal ideology and weave them into the concepts that you're teaching like Henry Giroux taught you to. That's not permitted. So when I read these bills, what I'm looking for is are these bills Coordinating quashing? off wokeness? Like putting it in – you can teach it, but you can't teach everything through it. Right. That's right. If you okay. want to present CRT as one option among many, I don't have a problem with that. But Same. if you want to make critical race theory the lens through which the social studies curriculum is taught, that's something else. Or if you want to provi- present <clears throat> critical race theory as the, obviously the most compelling – like if you're going to say, well, I'm going to teach 90% critical race theory, and I will on the last day mention there are there are racist enlightenment liberals who don't like this, that would amount to the same thing, right? So the bills that I push or that I agree with are the bills that say you can't indoctrinate, you can't inculcate, you can't compel belief, you can't compel – Um, speech. You can't compel any of those things. You have to pull back on that. And teachers don't have the right, and here's a nice term, you don't have a right to subvert the curriculum by inculcating your own beliefs and weaving your ideology into everything, right? Now, someone's going to come along and someone has said, but wait, that's already disallowed because you're not allowed to create a hostile environment for people. And this is where the subversion is because the woke are going to say, look, the environment was always already hostile. Wokeness is how we make it not hostile. Yep. Right? The the system, this, the oppressive white patriarchy, which is in which is built into the curriculum has to be deconstructed by the teacher in order to stop the hostile reinscribing of white white supremacist patriarchy via right. the curriculum that's, that's what right. they're going to argue well that, so, that's that's the argument like you, you were saying that. that you were saying you don't want everything taught through the lens of critical race theory which is crt brother charles or wokeness or whatever but their right. argument is that everything is always already taught through a supremacist lens this that's lens right. that we correct. aren't even aware of is already being and we're trying to fracture that lens because it has a hold over everything so what is the counter right. to that i mean other than the and, fact that it completely is, destabilizes everything it's a great yeah. tool for disruption and dismantling but is there not some sort of measured way to gauge to what extent are we forwarding some sort of limited viewpoint of the world and is the way of doing that purely negative saying i'm going to strain as much bias as possible i'm going to look for some sort of empirical test you know like uh, enlightenment scientific values are those the ways to strain or to to check to recheck that singular lens this is one part of the problem maybe i'm going to kick this to james in just a second but i want to say well maybe james you could answer this the woke aren't going to admit that there's any neutral ground that you could possibly teach from anyway. The the critical pedagogist the person who's teaching critical social, critical pedagogy which is the the like critical social justice pedagogy, isn't going to grant you that you could have a neutral place to stand. They're going to say, and Henry Giroux, I think, explicitly states this, that postmodernism points out that there's neutral ground to stand. So because you're always all 
and that's the key, always already. Mm-hmm. It was always the case, and it is the case now that you're teaching from some perspective. Teaching from our woke perspective is just our dismantling of you Antidote. teaching from your white supremacist perspective. Yeah. So yeah. they're not going to grant us that it's possible to have viewpoint neutrality. They would dispute the, the possibility of that. And so they say, because we can't have viewpoint neutrality, that's a chimera that we shouldn't even look for. And is that I'm going to kick that to James, but I think that's that's how, that's my reading of that. Yeah, that's that's what they think, and um, you know, it's very difficult to get around that in some kind of a comprehensive way. Uh, my my main man Helen doesn't try to get around that. She says, "No, I unapologetically do have a bias. I unapologetically do have a lens. It's classical liberalism or whatever liberalism, and we're going to do that and screw you, like more or less." She's well, like, no, but she'll, she'll defend it though. I mean, in, in in true classic liberal terms, she's like, "Here's where I'm going to stand, and I'll argue it to death with you." She doesn't That's say right. or else. That's right. Yeah. And from there, you actually do have room because you can say, "Well, let's look at the fruits." Let's see what happens. And what you are doing is actually causing massive amounts of problems. And what we were doing maybe isn't perfect, but it was causing less problems. And we can actually adjudicate that. So Helen's approach has a lot of strength to it. And uh, so her approach is to, to, to kind of lean into uh, a criticism that's very common of liberalism. You know, liberalism's often said that it believes itself to be without ideology, and then people nail it by saying, but everything's an ideology, including liberalism. And Helen's like, of course it is. Of course it is. And it's the best one. And is completely unapologetic about that. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, here's the proof. And like, by the way, have you seen the last 500 years? And, you know, just basically lays Mm -hmm. it out. Look at infant mortality. Look at this. Look at that. Look at the other thing. You know, kind of goes into a very Steven Pinker kind of defense, empirical defense of the fruits of liberalism and the fruits yeah. of capitalism, and which is funny because Helen's kind of a socialist and defends the capitalism anyway because it, she's told me in the past because she knows it works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that is actually one approach to dealing with that. Uh, the other approach, and one that I try to tend to favor, is actually that um, I think it's a canard to say there is no neutral position. I think that's asking a question that's not a legitimate question. I'm not saying that I believe there is a neutral position, but I believe that neutrality is an ideal. I believe that it's something that we can live up toward, we can live up to, or try to live up to. Merit is an ideal that we can try to live up to, and even without its perfection being there. Um, And so, for example, if the claim is things are biased, therefore we have to introduce more biases I completely disagree with that argument. You know, we need a white perspective, a black perspective, an Asian perspective, a Chinese perspective, a Mexican perspective, a, you know, disabled perspective. No, we don't need we 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 don't need a kaleidoscopic as their literature refers to it perspective and in fact there's no time for this. What we need to do is try to cut down to where for example in mathematics there's I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a math PhD. There's not a whole lot of ideological perspective going on in mathematics. There's literally just adding up numbers and stuff. It's not that complicated. I can understand where you might be concerned that there's an ideological lens in, say, history or literary interpretation or the literary canon. But nevertheless, um, I think it's perfectly uh, consistent to say we are going to actually strive 
to not add more biases, but rather to properly question any biases that might be present. And while maybe we cannot obtain perfectly neutral territory, we're going to look for that rather than trying to stand, rather than trying to stand on 50 pieces of land at the same time and argue it out uh, in a very kind of fractured way. Uh, so that's a different approach to answering that question, um, which I think you actually can combine because liberalism within it contains pluralism, which is basically what I've argued for. There's there's something if you if you allow me like kind of a metaphorical way of thinking, but there's something that that I, I'm picking up here is that you can only get to this ideal through ex- exemption. Or, or through a negative. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, rather than a positive, you, you have to do this, you shall do this, right? And, and by which I mean, in order to protect a very fruitful, functional system of society and uh, connection of institutions, you can bar certain sorts of behavior it's easier to bar the behavior, figure out how to strain ideological purity or strain these different forms of uh, extremism or fundamentalism or beliefs that take over everything by setting up negative rules. Because, And I think of that because, Wokel, you were saying that the laws that you promote uh, that are anti-critical race theory or CRT – say no on this, no on that, no on that. And same thing with you, James. The same thing with that Trump executive order. It was you can't you can't vilify one group. You can't teach that, you know, uh, that American history is based on some sort of evil machinations or whatever. There's there's a bunch of negative statements that can then it's the best way to get to what we want through negative laws rather than through positive laws that dictate something. So I think just just to do, I'd like to inject just a little bit of heresy here for a moment. Yes. Um, in in John chapter one, it says, "And the Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us." I think that the First Amendment incarnated itself in the flesh and made its dwelling among us in the person of Greg Lukianoff, who is the, the director of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And in Acts chapter 1, when it talks about the tongues of fire falling on the apostles so that they can speak, uh, I think that's a mistranslation. It says that the fire, and it's coming down on the students and allowing them to speak in spite of the censorious administrations. So... I just wanted to inject that that heretical line of thinking into the conversation, because I <laughs> all I have, five people I, that got it really got it. Welcome. Yeah, I <laughs> I have so much respect for Greg Lukianoff and what the fire does, and the reason that I picked negative uh, is because when we're talking about law, we want to constrict ourselves to being very very narrow, because yeah. when it comes to speech and to teaching and law, the moment you make a positive law about what's being taught, you, you're verging into the area of compelled speech or compelled belief. Mm-hmm. And I, I would want to be very, very careful outside of – I think that K-12 to public school education, you can, you can legislate a curriculum, right? You could do that. So we have to teach math. We have to teach this. We have to teach that. You could, that's. I don't think that's. Yeah, I don't think that's compelled speech. But we want to construe our laws very, 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 very narrowly, which is why I say you know we should construe ourselves and constrict ourselves to K to twelve, public schools, right? 
And then within that, we should be picking very narrowly, we should be plucking out things very narrowly that the woke are trying to do in order to inculcate their worldview. That's a legal strategy. Okay? And it's consistent in with the First terms, Amendment. Yes, yes. That's which is what also I phrased do. I negatively, right? Okay. Right. Which Congress I don't, shall make yes, no law one, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting right. the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and that's to petition right. the government for a redress of grievances. Yeah. And so when it says Congress shall make no law, that's a negative thing as well. So that's going to shape what the legal strategy is. And so I want to be very careful that, yeah. the, that the laws that go on – that's why I say when people say you want to ban CRT, I say I don't want to ban CRT. What I want to do is prevent CRT from becoming the lens, the default lens that sets the tone, the aura, the ethos, the atmosphere of the classroom in which the children are being taught. I don't want it to become the water that the, the fish are swimming in or the air that the children – So you, you want to keep it the white, white supremacist breathing. water that they're breathing in? Just well, like no, Robin I want to bring in enlightenment liberalism, and I – I would so, reject yeah, that characterization yes. utterly. Well, that's how they would say it. But I would also do one other thing for you. Free expression is not just a legal thing. It's an Enlightenment liberal value. And in that regard, we actually can do say, have some dues. Do bring in dissenting voices. Do bring in people who really believe different things than you do on important issues that you care about, particularly moral ones. Yep. Do bring in people who who are the finest and most articulate and persuasive advocates for their view. Now, John someone's going to come Wolf. along, yeah, hmm. and someone's going to come along and say, "Well, what about someone who advocates for genocide?" When that line is brought in, the reason that they bring that line is, well, what about someone who advocates for genocide, or what about someone who advocates for the legalization of Segregation. Pick the most important crime you can. Oh, I'm sorry. Segregation is a like good that. thing now. I, I living yeah. in. <laughs> yes, yeah, so think about out of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You you think of that, and they're going to say, "Well, what about that person who argues for that?" And what they're trying to do is to say there are certain views that are so obviously false that we just because we can't teach everything, we have to to cut some things off. It's impossible for us to teach everything. That's just not something we can do. And further, there has to be some limits to what we teach. We can't just have anything and everything because then someone can just invent a stupid view and say, now you have to give me a job as a professor, right? So we can't do that. And they're going to use that to try and, and say, ah, yeah. so now that we can kick things out, here's the things I want to kick out, anything that's not woke, right? Yeah. They're going to say – you have a limit to what you'll teach, and now that we have that limit, let's shrink it down to just wokeness, right? That's exactly – I can't believe you actually pulled this off because I wanted to say something that you said very early on in your previous monologue, and um, I was going to read to you, as I like to do, um, and then we went way off, and now you've pulled it right back. So what you said was that they want to use discourse engineering to control thought. They want to control mm -hmm. the yep. limits of acceptable thought. And what you've just said is kind of proof of that, but I'll give you a different proof, which is 
to read from read from my, one of my favorite of all time horrific essays, Repressive Tolerance, one of those hammer. <laughs> you do really stroke. love that, James. Yeah, well, you have to understand it is the logic that we operate within in the present world. What we just saw with the Project Veritas expose with the the vaccine algorithm variable that Facebook is using to suppress things. This is repressive tolerance. The opinions they don't want are going to get downvoted, algorithmically shut down, and they're tracking variables to do this. It's repressive tolerance. That which they want forwarded is going to be forwarded, and that's in their mind. And discourse engineering is going to shape what people are able to think. And so reading from Marcuse, one paragraph only, it's a fairly long paragraph, I apologize, but I'll try not to do too much commentary in the middle of it. Withdrawal of tolerance from regressive movements before they can become active. Intolerance even toward thought, opinion, and word. And finally, intolerance in the opposite direction, that is, toward the self-styled conservatives, to the political right. These anti-democratic notions respond to the actual development of the democratic society, which has destroyed the basis for universal tolerance. So he's advocating for the censorship and the intolerance of thought opinion and word thought opinion and word of the right he says he acknowledges that these are anti-democratic but the context of the essay is that he's saying in order to have a true universal tolerance we have to use anti-democratic methods so he's defending that the conditions he writes under which tolerance can again become a liberating and humanizing force have still to be created when tolerance mainly serves the protection and preservation of a repressive society, when it serves to neutralize opposition and to render men immune against other and better forms of life, then tolerance has been perverted. And when this perversion starts in the mind of the individual, in his consciousness, his needs, when heteronymous interests occupy him before he can experience his servitude, then the efforts to counteract his dehumanization must begin at the place of entrance where the false consciousness takes its form, or rather, is systematically formed by systems of power. It must begin with stopping the words and images which feed this consciousness. To be sure, this is censorship, even pre-censorship, but openly directed against the more or less hidden censorship that permeates the free media. So this is exactly what we're talking about. Herbert Marcuse's thesis in this essay is that we have to prevent conservatives or the right, which is his definition of those, which is basically everybody that disagrees with with him, <laughs> everybody to the, you know, that's exactly one hair's breadth to the right of Mao. Uh, we have to prevent those people from even being able to think thoughts that would oppose the liberating, humanizing tolerance that would bring about the liberating, humanizing force that will bring about the liberating humanized society and so he's saying quite literally we have to pre-censor so that people can't even form the resisting thought to our movement there's something about liberation there's something about ideologies or people who enshrine liberation itself or a liberatory process it the same pattern of authoritarian behavior and dismantling uh, institutions and then dreaming of a very perfect world and not really caring how you get there, just implementing it off the fly. I don't know why. I think we've spoken about that before, James, but there's yeah. something about like enshrining freedom, like trying to escape gravity where you start to escape from all limits and then become like, like some sort of maniacal God in your imagination in order to, affect I mean, that's really what it is. Uh, that ultimately is what it is. This kind of stuff is perfect for megalomaniacs to pick up, but we already yeah. actually, 
actually said what it was when when we were talking a moment ago with the idea that the system is already racialized. And if you think about that, if you accept that as an article of faith, the system's already racialized. It's already creating racial oppression. This is actually an injustice, if true. So if you've accepted this, you're seeing unnecessary harm happening everywhere that you consider is literally the conditions of an emergency for some people. And then you can easily look at other people and say, well, those people don't even know that it's happening. And so they, of course, they don't care about it. And uh, they have false consciousness or whatever, or they benefit from it. So they have willful ignorance or whatever it happens to be. And so this would be an emergency situation in, in, in your mind. Now, the thing is, is again, like I was saying earlier, that they don't know how because what they believe is that perfected society hides down within the core, and that if you can just peel away all those evil forces, if you can just show people that they're actually servants to heteronymous interests or that they are conditioned and socialized by the discourses and norms of society and get them to see how that's causing their lives to be miserable so they now will experience their servitude, then they won't like it. They'll peel it away. Those problematics will go away, and then the perfect society, the utopia, will bloom. And this is very interesting. I was just reading about Theodore Adorno in Negative Dialectic, his 1966 book, which gets really postmodern, actually. it's I think ne- negative dialectic and deconstruction are virtually the same thing. Um, do you, so one is are you, technically neo-Marxist and one is do postmodern. You, do you enjoy this stuff at this point? Yet, no, do, I do not enjoy reading like, oh, okay, but I do enjoy do thinking this. about how they organize this. And so mm. the idea in negative dialectic, though, is that you can't actually get it's not possible to get to the good. He says, what is it? How does he phrase it? There is no positive expression of the utopia or something like that. No positive uh, depiction of the utopia, something like this. And what he means is that the only way that you can get there is by peeling apart all the negative things that prevent the utopia from emerging. Utopia emerges when all the negative stuff is peeled away. And this is ultimately the kind of heartbeat of their dialectical philosophy. And so negative dialectic is where he says even the dialectical process of thesis hit with antithesis, so the opposites collide, and then you find the synthesis. Even that is a problem. Even that, that's a positive dialectic. It produces a synthesis on the other end. Even that's a problem because it then tries to create something. It tries to assert a positive thing rather than leaving it all at the negative. Just peel away the problems. Show the thing and show its contradiction and let everything just fall away so that the imageless utopia can start to emerge. And the reason that they are so fanatical about it is they believe a perfect world exists on the other side of this occurring, on the other side of this process kicking off and nobody knows how it will happen and in fact i've even i did a podcast on a thread one of these lunatics on twitter did one at one point with a blue check so i can say lunatic because that's like a diagnosis <laughs> um <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so they, they they did this thread though saying we don't know it was about abolishing the police i think and it was like we don't know how this will work but that's not a conversation for right now we just need to know that the police create problems and until we get the police off of our back we can't even think straight do we get the in marcuse's language do we get those heteronymous interests out of our heads we can't even possibly think straight so it's not a matter of what are we going to do to replace the police it's not a matter of how are we going to deal with the problems that are going to come up with the, getting rid of the police it's we have to get rid of the police oh, that's it that's the whole thing and then we don't even need to explain how things will work later we'll figure it out once the new better world starts to emerge that's when the reimagining starts taking place is there a non two questions is there a non dialectical 
counter to the dialectic, a non-antithesis that is the antithesis to thesis, antithesis, synthesis forms of thinking. And secondly, we haven't gotten back to your top-down, bottom-up, inside-out strategy. Oh, good call. Um, so th you don't actually have to participate in this dialectical process if you don't want to, right? The left You can is opt out good of Utopia? I thought... Yeah. Well, it turns out Utopia means nowhere, if you didn't know the Greek. <laughs> I, I so watch my it's probably man. better to opt out of that, which is funny because then what's... I mean, that's a perfectly natural thing for Adorno to have arrived at. There can be no positive depiction of nowhere. There you go. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> True. But it doesn't mean that you can get there by pretending that just by peeling away the evil that the, the you know, the seed of, of perfection will grow out of it. No. You don't actually have to proceed, proceed upon a dialectical path. You can actually proceed upon a path of, say, analytical logic. So analysis is actually opposite of synthesis. So hmm. analytical philosophy, in some sense, when it's not been corrupted, is in some very real sense the opposite of this. This is why these people hated Bertrand Russell so much, even though you know Russell was quite the positivist and he was very baked up into some formalism that didn't quite work out. Uh, these people absolutely hated him because what he was putting forth in his analytical philosophy approach was an absolute rejection of this synthetic dialectical approach. So it is possible to completely reject this and say, no, we're going to look for whatever is true and we're not going to say, oh, look, some stuff doesn't line up, so it must be some kind of a weird Aufheben, uh, or I guess Aufgehoben of these two things where we're now going to somehow obliterate the one and keep the other, or, or sorry, obliterate them and keep them and then elevate them to a higher level and kind of come up with some kind of, you know, cockamamie mixture of the two okay. that, that preserves both. We can actually not do that. We can actually just say we're going to step away from this entire mode of thinking about things and we're going to actually try to seek truth through other means entirely rather than you know, if something, if two things are contradictory, you, you, you can actually just say one of them is false, and now you're not partic participating in a dialectic. Or you've misunderstood the point. This is the example I've often given about Alfhaben. The Our friend on Twitter, who goes by the handle Emmy Jewel, tweeted this about things on Twitter. She said, being on Twitter, and I don't have the exact quote, but being on Twitter is like you say the sky is blue and somebody comes and says not at night. That's an Alfhaben. Okay, so that's you're you're keeping it the idea you're you're negating the idea that the sky is blue, but you're keeping something about it and you're elevating it to a higher level while also negating or abolishing the claim at hand, right? So no, it's red would be a negation through through implication, or no, it isn't would be just a straight negation, but not at night. It has a different character to it, and the way that you sidestep the dialectic is. You missed my friggin' point. You knew what I meant, you asshole. That's all you have to say. You knew I meant on a clear, sunny day with the sun shining. You knew what I meant. Yeah. And so you can actually sidestep the dialectic by refusing to play the game. It is a game to pull you into this, like... It's like, uh, since I don't know if he's still in the chat, our, our friend Mike, Mike has brought up, there's a difference between being smart, and I'm not talking in the British-Australian sense, I mean, in intelligent. There's a difference between being smart and being clever. And being clever is freaking annoying. And they're being clever, right? They're, they're, they're being, okay. uh, this is Helen's Professor Elemental is very clever. Um, rap, don't even listen to Chap Hop. Just don't. It's terrible. But anyway, that's, that's for Mike if he's still listening. Don't listen to Chap Hop. 
screw you. Quick question, maybe a side point. You said when analytic philosophy is not corrupted, are you saying corrupted by some form of dialectic, or what are yeah. the what are uh, the woke. weaknesses of an analytic? Kate Mann calls herself an analytical philosopher, and she's just doing wokery. Like it's that's corrupt. She's just she's stolen okay. the brand. So actual analytic philosophy, not people who call themselves analytic philosophers who are doing something different. Um, so if you look okay. back, uh, you, you, we were talking about Searle last time, but, you know, go read Russell about some of this stuff. Read Russell about Hegel, for example, uh, because really the dialectic is a Hegelian project. Bertrand Russell basically is like the dude's a wizard, <laughs> like, you know, and not that's not a compliment. It's like, you know, the guy it's just it's just all poppycock. Yeah, I, I got a, I got a glimpse of that when you were saying that this way of thinking where you have to abolish the opposite, you, you're implementing a formal pattern onto the world that doesn't necessarily have to be there. It, it makes sense, and you can build sense out of it. You can build a citadel of belief or all this project out of it. You can build an operation out of it, but it's not coming from something that actually has to happen. You don't have to abolish. Where, where in nature is a vacuum created in order to create a non-vacuum or something like that, right? It, it's enforcing some sort of absolutist structure. Dude, it's alchemy. It's alchemy. Yeah, it's alchemy. Yeah. It's just alchemy. And it's it's narrative driven. So the synthesis yeah. exists as some narrative where you've just kind of like fudged some things together and then you're pushing it as some new truth that supposedly captures both at the same time. Um, the most famous with Hegel at the very basis was, he, he, you know, the thesis for him was being and its antithesis is nothing. So very philosophical, right? Beingness versus nothingness. And he says, ah, but becoming that is neither but contains both because mm -hmm. for being to come out of nothing it must become right so it depends on both concepts and it retains both concepts but it's a separate thing but all he's done really is just stuck a verb in there right it's it's just a language game it's a, this is nonsense it's fun it's a story it's, it's fun it is fun but it's really a bad way i was at the beach recently right so i'm down there and it's a, i went i had the very good fortune of going to the same beach twice about two months apart. And I've never been to the same beach twice, two months apart before in my life. So when I went in February, at the very end of February, the beach had a particular shape to it, right? The slope of the beach down to the water, um, the way that the waves crashed like right up against the shore because it was quite a steep sand beach. And, you know, the whether or not there's that with low tide, is there that line of shells? Is there the sandbar and the water between where the breakers are? And then there's kind of a dead area and then there's a second beach or whatever. When I went in February, that was not there. When I went back in, uh, I guess, May, it was there. So the beach was fundamentally topologically different. Right. And what was going on was that the, the waves are fundamentally reconstructing the beach all the time. But that's to keep and yet to abolish at the same time. Right. So it's kind of like, wow, this is sort of like the topography of the beach is sort of Alfhaven in itself. And then I thought, well, what's the lesson here? It's like you're not going to build something on this because you can't trust it to stay stable. So you can't build a society on mm -hmm. a shifting platform. Mm hmm. And so that's why the Hegelian model, like it's just kind of a stupid metaphor, but the, it's, it's simplistic or whatever, but the Hegelian model doesn't work to build a society on. It might be interesting to play with ideas, and it's probably mm. useful in philosophical contexts, but it's not at all a basis for building a whole program, program of society because it's too – it's shifting sand, right? Well, Literally shifting sand. To, to bring up what um, – Wasn't there a – 
wasn't there a man who said we should build our houses on rocks, not sand? <laughs> right? Was there a man and, that said that? Oh, was yeah, that, that, that Jonathan is, Haidt, right? <laughs> I think it was Greg Lukianoff. <laughs> yeah, Lukian- yeah, Greg Lukianoff. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, do you think that Hegel or, or Bertrand Russell would be in, into eating bugs? Which one do you think would... would uh... I can just picture, like, looking at the painting of Hegel's face. I can just see him with the cicada wings hanging out of his flabby <laughs> lips right now. Bertrand Russell's not eating bugs. Bertrand Russell's probably eating, like, creme brulee and some perfectly tiny little like he weighed like nine pounds i think he was eating some tiny little perfectly like all of his green beans are in a perfect straight line and they don't touch the mashed potatoes at all like i don't know if that's true or not i'm looking through the rebel cell i can't find the exact quote but in that book they make the point that part of the problem with trying to create the utopia is that it requires the rigorous enforcement of belief that just destroys freedom Right, The utopia that the woke are talking about requires universal agreement and absolute conformity to a set of values, right? So when they say, well, we'll have diverse all kinds of different people, yeah, but they'll all have to believe the exact same thing because conflicting values will create conflicting behaviors, and that's going to create conflict, which now your utopia is gone, right? And second thing is um, you talked about – we keep talking about the synthesis and 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 how this works – I think a really wonderful way to discuss this, and I think James could go through it really well. I hate to be like asking him to just keep doing stuff. Uh, structural determinism as the synthesis, as the, as the thing that allows them to bridge biological essentialism and the postmodern theory of identity. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So structural determinism is really how it all works. This is the, the this is the mover concept within woke wokery. I finally kind of figured this out. Hmm. What is structural determinism? Let's go back to our friend Carl of the House of Marx. Carl of the House of Marx believed that there is a capitalist system in place and this created a superstructure that determined which class that you ended up in, bourgeoisie or proletariat. And depending on which class you were in, it was more or less determined how things would work out for you. You call this, uh, you know, I guess that would be material determinism at this point. But material determinism because it has to do with the material conditions of your life as bourgeois or as proletariat. Um those material conditions of your life are determined by the superstructure, the capitalist superstructure that's in place that operates society overall. So the structure, so we talk about structural racism in critical race theory, the structure is the thing that's determining which category of society, which stratification really of, of society you end up in, and then that determines your lot in life. And you either understand it or you refuse to understand it depending on on some further uh, refinements within each of those categories. But there's a structure, and for Marx it was capitalism, that determines which of the categories you're in, bourgeois or uh, proletarian. And which of those two categories you're in is then going to be materially determinant in terms of what your outcomes and opportunities in life are going to be. Now, let's sub out capitalism and sub in white supremacy. And now we have the exact same idea that now this white supremacy 
operates and it creates a systemically racist superstructure. I guess systemic racism is the idea and it creates a, a white supremacist uh, superstructure. And that superstructure of institutions, norms, values, etc., ways of speaking about things, in other words, discourses and so on, that superstructure then goes further down and creates uh, categories. You have the racially privileged, in some sense, related to the racially oppressed uh, people of color with BIPOC as the most oppressed. And so now you have a new uh, bourgeoisie who have access to not uh, material privilege, but racial privilege. And you have a new proletariat who has access, or who is not, uh, I should say, materially oppressed per se, though it's often a consequence. They are, in fact, uh, structurally oppressed by white supremacy, systemically oppressed. And so now you have this exact same idea. So structural determinism becomes the mode in which they think this is how how this is the thing that generates the so-called authentic lived experience or the authentic voice of color. If you experience that life as the oppressed minority, you have uh, which is structurally determined by the white supremacist superstructure that's in place. If you experience that, then you have the lived experience of oppression. Therefore, you gain a unique voice of color related to that. That is the authentic expression, in other words, a critical race theory expression of yeah. what it means to be, say, a Pacific Islander or a BIPOC or whatever it happens to be within a white supremacist superstructure society. And that that's how they think. So what is this this structural determinism? Well, structural determinism is a, if we want to, I think this is what Wokel wanted me to, to point out, is that it is the Hegelian dialectical synthesis yeah. of essentialism yes. and anti-essentialism. So essentialism is that who you are or who you happen to be carries with it certain properties that are essential. So being black means something essential about you. Being white means something essential about you, etc. And the woke explicitly reject this. They say that race is socially constructed, which is a postmodern idea. Anti-essentialism is what social constructivism really should look like, because it says that, well, um, you know, this is a social category. It's not biological. It's not a biological category, except in the most superficial of senses that doesn't matter. Therefore, we are not essentially black or essentially white or whatever. But you read, for example, Kimberly Crenshaw, and she talks in Mapping the Margins, her kind of biggest deal paper from 1991. And she says, we can't that would be what, what she calls the vulgar constructionist thesis. And we can't accept the vulgar constructionist thesis any more than we can accept vulgar Marxism, which is what they talk about in, say, the introduction of uh, critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement. Vulgar Marxism, vulgar constructionism. We can't accept a vulgar constructionist thesis that ignores the fact that race is imposed by this racial superstructure. So now all of a sudden what you have is what supersedes the idea of there is no race essentialism, so you have anti-essentialism, but there is some essential experience to being race uh, to experience living as a race in a racist superstructure. What idea supersedes that in the Alf Haben way? What is the dialectical synthesis, in other words? And that synthesis is, oh, your life is structurally determined, so you have a unique voice of color that's rooted not in who you happen to be, but in your lived experience in a society that's, that has imposed upon you certain identity categories. So it's essentialist and anti-essentialist at the same time, in some regard, and sidesteps it all by going into this structural determinism narrative or doctrine and that's that, actually the operating system of the whole thing. 
That might be the underpinnings of why they use the term bodies. They call themselves bodies. They're determined. They're just like a body flying through space. Maybe not literally. Maybe I'm just being poetic here, but it sounds like well, the, that's the, how it makes Part sense. of why they use bodies is because you are a body, which is a material thing, and then you have this identity imposed upon, upon yeah. that body. It's determined, so, though. It's a determined yes, that's right. Newtonian determined. thing. Yeah. Society is determining it for you. The socialization is determining it for you. And uh, it's being like you happen to have a body that happens to be a black body. And because you have a black body, society views you in a particular way and it imposes certain social assumptions upon you. And those are going to be determinant of the range of your possible experience so in the, life. So the woke assumptions yeah. that they're imposing on everybody are somehow going to negate in a Hegelian manner the actual assumptions that structural society is imposing on everybody. Is it, a, is it an antithesis to the imposition that they pretend is being imposed on everybody? Well, I mean, it's just, or is you know, too simplistic. Those, yeah, a little bit. It's just that, you know, there's this idea that maybe there's some essential traits, right, to being who you happen to be, biologically speaking. No. And then that is getting attacked or it's meeting its opposite and no, it's all socially constructed. And then so, which is a very kind of. It's actually that it's all bogus, but it's all socially constructed, but the social constructions themselves create determinant outcomes. Is that what you meant? Is yes. that what you were saying? Well, I'm just saying that, that wokeness, as we're construing it, is the imposition of other determinism on everybody. It's the anti-determinism. Oh, sure, 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 yeah. 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 It's a move So it's determinism. It's not strictly – ex- right. That's right. It's, it's <clears throat> deterministic, but it's not deterministic through – the old meaning of essentialist, it's deterministic through a uh, dialectical synthesis of essentialism and anti-essentialism, which is so the idea the structure. Yeah. So instead of I have in certain internal properties which are essential to me, that's not true. Rather, what is true is that there are certain properties that I have that are given that are are given the society that I live in. Are there is a structure that means that I am determined, not in the sense of I'm very determined, but in the sense of of uh, it's inevitable that I will have particular ways of knowing, ways of viewing the world, particular experiences. I will have been socialized in a particular way. There is something that will be imposed upon me by virtue of the structures in which I live, that I have no say on, that I have, I didn't pick what society I was in, I didn't pick my social class, I didn't pick, I didn't pick any of the social identities that I was born into, and therefore, I had all of those social identities put upon me by by dint of birth, Right, I didn't pick any of them. That was determined by the society in which I I now live. Right, and so um, um, they would say those things are are not inherent to me, but are inevitable given what the circumstance actually is. So they have it both ways at once. On the one hand, they avoid they avoid saying you are such and so by virtue of your whiteness by of your biological they get rid of that but they do say in virtue of the way society says is set up 
your whiteness means that you can't help be but be seen as white. In the recent interview that Mark Lamont Hill did with Chris Rufo, when he tried said, Chris, what do you like about being white? And Chris said, well, here's a list of things that everyone says are affiliated with white people, but I reject that list. I don't see any reason to do that. And and Lamont Hill pressed him on it and said, no, I'm not asking what other people think is white. I'm saying, what do you like about your whiteness? He says, I, Mark Lamont Hill, as a black person, was saying, I might have things about culture that I like, or da-da-da-da-da. He gave some examples, and he said, what do you like about And Chris said, yeah, I, I really just want to be viewed as an individual, right? And Mark Lamont Hill gave a very telling answer. He said, yeah, well, you have the option to do that in society. I, Mark Lamont Hill, as a black person, don't have that option. It is determined for me that I will be treated and viewed as a black person. I have been racialized, Yeah. right? That's something that has been done to me. Yeah. And then the black identity that we have created for ourselves is in response to that, right? So that's how they get both things at the same time. So that's how they say There's truth in that though. They they say you they might say you you have there is things that you can't help but have in virtue of your whiteness without be it being biological, right? That's the dodge. And to which I would respond, there's a simple way to, to have a look at this. I, uh, as the woke would have it, read as white. I'm Jewish, I'm male, I live in Canada. And people would say that you, you identify as a white, Jewish, Canadian male. No. I would say that there are certain elements of Judaism, of my Jewish culture, that I identify with. And there are elements of Canadian culture that I identify with, and elements of, of masculinity as, as, as it's constructed that I identify with. And all of these little bits of these social paradigms that I identify with form this beautiful chiroscuro that was forged in the when as I was building calluses on my hands, working outdoors and getting frostbite on hockey rinks as a young man, and, and formed this kind of fabric, this quilt that's woven together of the things that I identify with. But those aren't the things that I identify as. And what I would want people to do is look at those things that I identify with and and see through the transparent paradigm to the individual who's identifying with those things and identify me as the individual that identifies with those things. Hmm. So identify me as the vocal that identifies with elements of masculinity or identify the vocal, identify as vocal the person who identifies with elements of Christianity or Judaism or whatever have you, right? The individual so, is the hub so that, around which all the identities uh, serve. The, the individual yeah, doesn't serve the identity. Ident- the identities serve the individual. The right. Things, and so those things that they construe as identities that you identify as should be things that you identify with, and then you identify the person identify the person as an individual. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yep. And so Mark Lamont Hill had another tell. Before that, when he was trying to set Chris up, and he specifically said, you know, well, I'll volunteer a little bit for you. I'll tell you what I like about being black. 
And he said there are certain cultural things. You know, he went straight into it. There are cult- cultural aspects that I particularly enjoy. And, and he didn't go into terribly great specifics, but he immediately, and I latched right onto it when he said it, is that it's a cultural identification. And so um, he was saying exactly the same thing Wokel just said, but he's trying to have it both ways. He's trying to associate those cultural things with being black, but if, say, for some, if we had, we had Bizarro Earth, where at birth, for some reason or another, a series of tragedies occurred, and the same exact baby who was Mark Lamont Hill in his infancy had been orphaned in such a way under whatever odd set of circumstances where he ended up adopted by a rich Chinese family in Shanghai, um, what he would be saying in terms of what he's what when the cultural things he's identifying with are probably going to be a little bit different, right? But that's not actually going to have changed his essence in any way whatsoever. So what he's actually doing was giving away that he said, I see blackness as a cultural thing that I am leaning into. Why don't you see whiteness as a cultural thing that you're leaning into? Whereas Chris wanted to lean not into cultural collectivism, but rather into individualism, and therefore uh, that's that's the fundamental difference between their okay. two perspectives. The, they are literally coming at it from two different worldviews. One is cultural collectivism, and one yeah. is individualism, where where there's a transcendence of culture by the individual. I find this personally. Um, having grown up in a U.S. context where you typically find different racial groups having particularly and obviously different uh, manners of speech, and speech is a very sensitive um, tribal marker if you look at things in kind of an anthropological view. Uh, you can tell, you know, well, look at Britain, for example, right? In London, they could tell you, you know, oh, you're on this block based on like some little sass in your accent. They can tell you almost exactly where you live by tiny variations in your accent because we're extremely sensitive to accent in terms of identification of uh, group identification. So when I find, when I go to places where those um, accent-based or dialect-based assumptions don't hold it feels like you're in a different paradigm, right? Because the accent or dialect is a very cultural-oriented thing. And so a good example of this, I was having a conversation, a group conversation at a conference that I went to last year, and it was about the 1619 Project or whatever, and there was a black individual who probably had the darkest skin of anybody in the group, and he grew up in New York City, and um, his parents turned out to be from Jamaica, and his accent was very kind of received American, but if there was any twang to it, it was slightly, with a little bit of that Jamaican flavor, but slightly British. So he did not come off as your typical kind of African-American vernacular. And he said, I've experienced, he, he prefaced this this whole thing by saying about his accent and his dialect, and he said, but I've experienced virtually no racism, and he's probably in his late 30s or early 40s, in my entire life, but it's probably by virtue of the fact that I don't sound black, right? That's what he said, that he he doesn't sound like he has African-American vernacular. And what I've noticed is that, for example, I got in trouble when I went to Australia. Mike was there. He can back me up on this, because I noticed that people of most... Almost every different racial group, and although it's not true if you run into the aboriginals, um, have virtually an identical Australian accent. Maybe they can tell regionally one, you know, Western Australia from from New South Wales or something. But to my ear, it was all Australia, right? And 
I said out loud that I observed that there was much less racism from, you know, one racial category to another. I often see this with British people as well, where, you know, you have very obviously people of South Asian descent uh, or black descent, African descent in London who speak with perfect London English. And you just see very little racism around there happening. And I think it's because those cultural markers aren't as obvious that set up markers of difference. And it's the markers of difference that people get uncomfortable around and have to figure out and navigate around. But because that's because these cultural markers of difference give off signals that you might call stereotypes, but they also give you guesses about other cultural markers. If somebody speaks a certain way, they probably grew up in a certain cultural background, they might have certain values, and you have to figure out how to navigate around those values, etc. And this, by the way, is one of these things I think that critical race theory makes worse because of its strong cultural protectionism by its uh, thing that Mark Lamont Hill leaned into, mm-hmm. which was that you're now going to identify a culture with your race and thus kind of like it's this is what I one of my criticisms when I was doing the atheism thing and people were like, you know, how do I be a good atheist? I really got pissed off about that back in the atheist day. It's like, well, the second you start trying to figure out how to be a good X, and it doesn't matter what X is, you're going to start looking up those values. This is one of the reasons why I don't want to identify as left. I don't want to identify as conservative. I don't want to I want to avoid labels as much as possible because it's going to the second I decide that, oh, I am this, I'm now going to start looking for what is a person who is this, what do they believe? And leaning into that. Well when you start identifying a race and a culture, well what do people who have that culture, how do they dress? How do they act? How do they behave? What are their values? How do they set themselves apart from other people? And when you start talking about how things set themselves apart from other people, you're creating division. And that's where your where that racial collectivism or identity based mm-hmm. collectivism um, really starts becoming a problem. And you saw this heavily policed. If you talk to Andrew Sullivan at any point, you can talk to him a great length about this. I did in person one day, uh, to my good fortune, and he talked about how there's this huge turf war in the '90s between the L, between the gay activists. I don't think they were LG anything yet. Um, between the gay activists and the queer activists. And Andrew, in tremendous fury, said to me, if I had to be queer, I never would have come out. And uh, I hope he hadn't said that to me in confidence because I've repeated it a few times publicly now. But the truth is there was this huge turf war between that. And it was, you know, Andrew wanted to have gay acceptance and most gay people wanted gay acceptance. They wanted to be able to be recognized as a part of the normal culture. Queer theory rejects normativity on pr- on pr- yeah. saying that they do anything on principle is a little bit of a misnomer. <laughs> but Fair enough. It does. It rejects normativity <laughs> on principle. And so they wanted every gay person to adopt queer culture, which queer culture is, what do they call it, an identity without an essence. So it's as long as you can't be identified as what you really are, then you're being queer. And so, but they wanted every gay person mm-hmm to lean into being queer. And that's, again, a marker of difference. It's leaning into a cultural identity that makes a a ground for difference and division. And that's the thing, ultimately, that I'm against. Not to say that, you know, if you be whoever you want, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're leaning into difference, you should probably expect divisiveness. And if your ideology demands difference and says that there's, uh, like, uncrossable gaps between differences, all you're going to get is divisiveness. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think there's something there's something else here. I I want to use I want to coin a term now if I can. Identitize. <laughs> they like to identitize things. That's true. So they'll take something. They'll take something which might not have anything to do with identity. So let's say, oh, an have you guys read the book Stuff White People Like? 
axes. Pipes. And they'll say like mochachinas or Uggs or whatever it is, and then they'll identitize those as white. Right? Axes. Um Axe is white though. Mark Lamont Mark still- you'll see this when they talk about <laughs> when there will be, for example, there was a a versus of two of two artists that are both black, and they will some people will say, ah, this is the music I listened to when I was a kid, that you can't get that form of music, that you, by virtue of being black, you get it, and by virtue of being white, you don't. That's identitizing it. That's, or they'll say, a white person will say, oh, Lord, make it make sense. They did that with the and, blues. And what, it's, it's performatively... It is performatively that- saying, I can't possibly understand I'm not white. It's, it's identitizing it to... I, to to take certain things and s- integrate them into the particular culture and into a particular cultural identity. This is why I did a thread where, uh, or I had maybe we'll link it afterwards. Uh, Buddy Guy was asked whether or not a white person can play the blues, and he got on stage and got angry, and he says. Of course, they can play just like me. I don't know. Maybe if he only got one finger or something, maybe he can. He got six fingers. But he goes, you've got the same number of fingers I can. Of course you can play the blues. Because Buddy Guy is relying on that old Enlightenment liberal thing, which would say, look, we're all the same. And you can learn from me. This is why B.B. King teaches John Mayer or why you know Eric Clapton plays with Howlin' Wolf. The, the, the woke would say... On a fundamental level, Eric Clapton and John Mayer can't get it. That it's not real blues, because in order to be real blues, you can only have the blues as a result of being a black person living through an oppressive class. So they identitize the blues as a thing that can only be understood through person who's got that identity as it's been socialized and inculcated into them via the structurally determined culture, right? That's part of it. So they identitize and the process of identitization is is one that they, they do on Twitter and it's very performative, right? That's why they say, oh, oh, you're white, you can't possibly blah, 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 blah. Or they'll say when a white, I can never understand that. And it's like, well, you know exactly what I mean. If your life depended on it, you'd know, and you get it just as well as I do. It's, but you, you have to performatively not know because I'm you're, you're not white or you don't want to be white or, or however it goes. Now, that's not to say that there aren't certain things that are a part of black or Jewish or white culture that you wouldn't know had you never been in contact with that culture. For example, I am fairly certain that if you dropped me off in the middle of, say, China, a place I've never been, I wouldn't get a lot of stuff. That's true. I wouldn't get it. But that's not what they're talking about. I would say, give me enough time in China, give me 20 years, and I could learn it. They would say, you could never really learn it because you're not really Chinese. You're always a white person in China. Mm-hmm. And you're always, and here's a key, you're always red as white in China. And because you're always red as white in China, everyone who's interacting you will be interacting with you as a white person. And because of that, 
all the ways that they interact with you are different than how they would interact with you if you were really Chinese. So it's not the same. So you don't really get it. You're always in some sense on the outside. It's so You're racist. always otherized. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah, it is. Well, it's it's divisive. absurdly racist. It, it, right. I, I came so across they, that question in uh, Twitter. I didn't know it was from the Chris Rufo interview, but what do you enjoy about being white? I'm like, this is a trick question. First of all, this is a trick question. Secondly, I don't like thinking this way. Thirdly, well, what do I like? What do I like about other white people? And I'm like, well, I like Beethoven. I like this person. I like this person. But I also like the blues. And I also like this. how I construct my identity is how do I feel about the cultural products that I come across? And then what do I want? want to emulate? What do I want to create with what I've felt and try to stir up in other people? I have to go to the roots of what I am for any of my art to outlast me. And maybe I could peg it on my culture. Maybe I could sing the song of the white boy that will be enshrined by white men for a thousand years, and that will perpetuate me. But I want to get bigger than that. I want to go into the hearts of, of humanity. I want to sing to that. That's what I want to identify as. That's a better answer than I gave Benjamin. And Do you know what I my answer say, was I would, about what I like about being white? Just so I can go on the record and say, I like how much what? Mark Lamont Hill's mom loves that vanilla rocket comb. That's what I like about being white. What's Emma Lilla Rockham comb? Vanilla rocket cone? It's an allusion to my penis. <laughs> okay. How much Mark Lamont Hill's mom likes my vanilla rocket cone? Benjamin. I, I, I want to add something here about That's what I like about I, identity. Um, there, when they say what do you like about being white, there's a way in which you you might want to ask them if you if we wanted to act deconstructively on their meta narrative, you might want to say, do you mean like stuff people like white, or do you mean like redneck white? Because there's a difference between yeah. drinking Starbucks, like yeah. hating your parents' religion, and being very very left-wing progressive on the one hand and driving a truck having budweiser and being a country boy who's very very conservative on the other so when you say you i'm white around here are you yeah which white am i am i white that i'm you know we're going mudding tonight or am i white as in i have yoga class tonight which white do you think that i am you're the headband and i would i would want to 80s retro yeah. vocal white right now <laughs> I, I, I would say, and I don't want to be too. This is why I, I, I said earlier. I, I have like this kind of. I use the term chiaroscuro because I love that. It's just like this blend of of various things that I've latched onto and identified with, because I've pulled things from all over that I identify with as me, because. Some of it, I just, it's just stuff that I'm emotionally, I, and I recognize it, stuff that I'm just emotionally attached to from when I was little. My mom's brownie recipe. I don't know where she got it. I don't know if she invented mm. it. I don't know if it's a Jewish brownie recipe or not. I have no idea. I just know it's the one that my mom made. And so that's the one I like because it has memories from when I was a little kid. And I'm, but I don't think that has anything to do with whiteness. And the are other they white thing brownies that I want to pull in brown? white. They're, they're chocolate brownies. Did you see that? Uh, just one, just one small little note. There was a professor up in Canada a few years ago. He did a conference on why it's okay, why it's not okay to be white, and he argued that meatloaf and ketchup were the essence of whiteness. 
So just just to get to your brownie metaphor. I mean, that can be okay though. Yeah. No, I would. I would now if you. If you wanted to deconstruct that, you could say, "Do you mean meatloaf is in meatloaf and mashed potatoes, or do you mean, or do you mean that I would do anything for love?" Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't. I'm do sure that, it, it was a food analogy. I don't think he would. He would have brought up art. <laughs> I don't know. He might have listened to meatloaf. James, but... yeah, that's right. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, I won't uh, do that. I, I, I want to say, that. part of what they're doing when they when they do when they make his mom though all of their theory of identity as being race and class and gender and queer and all of that in the end, just like all of the things that they do because it comes from Derrida's postmodernism, is in the root of the worldview. It's hollow. Once you peel back all the layers of identity from them, there's nothing left. All there is, is the That's particular dark, experience. There's, uh, the, there's nothing hmm. left for them. That's that's why so often I think they lean so hard into their culture because they're they have no it's the deconstruction of the self as as Roderick uh, was what was it is it um, Rick Roderick put it they have the self is disappearing under postmodernism that's part of their problem that's they like crisis of authenticity thing we've talked about before. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. I, I, I think, I think, and we should one day, we should next time we do one of these, what we should do is, is I want to run my explanation of Derda past everybody, okay. because as much as people have misunderstood Derda, there is something in the heart of Derda that they get, and that is, that everything, there is no inherent meaning to everything, it always gets its relationship. It always gets its its identity from its relation to something else, right? Which is true, there right? Is or no, not true? Is that true? Is it not not, true? not the way that it has it? It's okay. that everything only ever refers on to something else, right? Yeah. So there is no and there is no absolute linchpin, and so for them there would be no personal identity. There only is the way that they are identified within the culture by their layers of 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 social identity. That's all that there is. When you pull back all of their layers of social identity, nothing is there. They 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 have convinced themselves that their self, their their I, their me, is is just agency as layered by these various identities. And right. then all that determinism it's, embodied in each identity. So the agency itself that, is not theirs. That is just impinged upon by other forces. Yeah, the agency only operates along the tracks that the identities that are laid onto it allow it to operate on. Hmm. It, as Foucault would have it, those identities and the social, um, the social construction of those identities and the the deter- the structural determinism structures the field of action of the people of in various identities, right? So, white people have certain things that they can get away with and can't get away with, and black people have certain things they can get, and women, and and on and on and on. And once you peel back all those layers, th- there's just agency, raw. There's no self because the self is just made up of the identities. And identity plus agency plus socialization. 
there's no soul, there's no me, there's no I, as it were. They don't have that. The, the, their, the, the enlightenment self is going away. Hmm. It's all inheritance. That's, that's disappearing. All that's left is various... All, the, the only thing that they have to lean into to get a sense of identity is the socially constructed identities, which is why they have to identitize everything that they do, mm -hmm. right? They have to make everything they do... Instead of making the thing that they're doing, they have to make it a thing that X group does. Right? I keep saying right. I have to stop. That's a tick. Yeah. They have to make <laughs> I'm right. everything that they, they, they have to make everything that they do. So for me, if I was a woke person, I'd have to say uh, everything I have to do would have to be something that a white person does. Just be in my white self. Just watch stay my in your white lane. show. Yeah, stay Life in my white, doing white lane. Having, having my mail. Because I'm a white boy. Because I have to lean into that to my to my whiteness. Because that's what my that's my source of my identity. Yeah, you enact whiteness in sixteen, nineteen different ways, vocal. <laughs> yeah, and if I don't have my whiteness and my Jewishness and my maleness, my male, there's nothing left. Yeah, there's no vocal. There's no, and you there's can't no connect to society. Like there's no, there's no you in relation to anybody else. There's no way for you to plug into any sort of group if you don't have your identity. So you're all alone and you don't or, exist. If there was a me or an I or an Imagio Dio, all of those things would be a certain kind of logos. And remember, we're doing away with logocentral centrism or phonofalo logocentrism. Yeah, phonofalo logocentrism. We're, we're getting rid of all of that. So that's all being peeled back. And so the identities are like layers of an onion. Once you peel them all off, there isn't anything. It's nihilistic to its core. Although they think they get out of it by saying, well, we relate to this and we relate to this. So they think that they can escape the relativism and nihilism. They think they can dodge it, but they can't. That, so, that bill, as you, said on, as you said on Twitter, James, once you take a loan out from social constructivism, it demands to be paid out. That's right. Yeah, it comes back. It, it the the, the devil will the devil will collect his due on that one, um, for sure. Vocal, I figured out what you look like. A bassist. I hope it's a pro wrestler. A what? A bassist. A bassist. He looks like a bassist, doesn't he? Look like a bassist. Can you play slap bass, vocal? Please tell me you can play well, slap I, bass. One second. Oh, I was hoping he was going to bring out some music. I wanted some music, not pre-recorded, so it gets it tanks my whole stream. I can play the axe. Can you, though? <laughs> I have to get you set up and get it all plugged in. We can do a, a musical out outro. Oh, wow. Okay. I was hoping he had some music in him. Yeah, you can't hear the electric guitar without the amp. I, I'm playing in my head. It's like the perfect air guitar. I can hear anything. It's like ultimate possibility. Yeah. Streaming from his fingers. That was, I don't know. That's you not guys, a bass, though. We should no. we should angle no, down it's just, in, a, it's just a six string. Just a regular old six string. We should angle down into finishing. Um, okay. 
if you guys are cool with that, James, you have an anniversary, yeah. or we're not to talk about that. Like, uh, no, we can talk about it. I, I got. Is it going to be a queer? Years ago today. It's going to be a queer anniversary. There was no queer in my. Well, actually, it's not true. The people who married me are gay. I guess that's queer. Um, like, it was a gay couple who actually hmm. performed the ceremony. You can tell how hateful I am in my heart. Uh, Wait, you got married by two people? That's interesting. I've never heard of that. Well, really, the one guy did it, and then the other. So there was a catcher and a pitcher kind of thing. Who's now his husband sang. And that's, oh, okay. And they coordinated to like they wrote, like they were like, "What vows do you want?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Why don't you write some?" <laughs> and because we're just pretty cool, and so like they coordinated to write the ceremony and all this because we were like, "Just do the thing and get it over with." Like, let's just let's get to the part where we eat, <laughs> and like <laughs> that's good enough. It's like we're, I mean, whatever. So anyway, that's what happened. Um, so a gay priest and his husband. Not a Catholic a priest. Episcopal, they can marry. I want to, just to finish up, I, at one point what I'd like to do, because we've talked around and we've talked about the postmodernism, I I would like to to do a thing where we can start out by just doing the Derda, and we can go through and teach Derda proper of what, he, what Derda said, what he was taken to say, and then how to build our way out of it because criticizing it's not going to do it we have to build our way out of it i would love to do that one day i think i think that's necessary and then the other thing is i wanted to a make a castle made out of sand is, kind of activity or i wish um part of be. what's going on is it with with the crt bills that are going through i see a lot of people saying like you guys are trying to ban crt and I, I want to hit this again because I think it's so important. The goal, at least as I have it, when I see the various bills coming through, and I keep seeing this on Twitter, I've said it before and I will continue to say it, is what I want to see is bills that prevent government employees and teachers from using their positions as pulpits soap boxes and pulpits that's right um i don't want to see people denying services or slow walking aid or indoctrinating children in the classroom because they've 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 taken on a strategy where they say now that i'm in the institution you have to let me run my ideological program you have to let me do this. And hmm. I would like to say no. They say, I want to bring my whole self to work. You can bring your whole self to work, but we have a curriculum and you'll teach the curriculum through our through the lens of of yeah. of the yeah. through through the lens that the state has asked and in a way that has been decided that is okay by the people and i i want to ensure as much as is possible that and i'm trying to be very very careful here i don't want to prevent woke people from having their ideas or sharing their ideas or speaking their ideas or arguing for their position i don't want to violate any of their fundamental rights um 
the same time, when they decide to use their teaching position or their government job or their role in government as a pulpit and a soapbox, when we say that's not permitted, when we demand viewpoint neutrality or as close as we can get to it, if they feel that the push for that is a social rejection of their view, I don't believe that's chilling speech. For us to say you can't indoctrinate, I don't believe that's a chilling effect on speech. I, I, I think that if we were banning it, that would be a problem. If we were saying that universities couldn't teach it, and insofar as bills, some of these bills might be construed to prevent university professors from teaching or from talking about these ideas, I would say that shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. But insofar as it's public-facing government employees and K-12 public school teachers, I think it is legitimate for the state to set rules for how the curriculum is taught and what gets taught in the classroom. That is what I stand for. I am not interested in... You can't beat woke ideas by banning them. That's never going to work. And I've been saying that right from the get-go. James has been saying it right from the get-go, too. However, it does not follow from that that we have to allow them to use public school classrooms as pulpits. That is the thing that I am trying to prevent. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Um, People have a right to their beliefs. They have a right to their speech. They do not have a right to power. (laughs) They do not have a, a right to compel other people to listen uh, to that, especially from a state-sponsored, right. as a state-sponsored mouthpiece. Um, so, yeah, there is a there is a distinct difference here. I think it's actually crucial on a functional level, and it's different within the public and private sectors that woke people who are using wokeness in their professional capacities have to be removed from power over other people because I believe their ideology is very dangerous. Now, if a private company wants to go woke and experiment, that's their own business. Um, But I would say that that, that's why I said it's different in the public and private sectors. In the private sector, if somebody wants to do this, they're more than welcome to do it. If Disney wants to be woke, they're welcome to ride that tiger as far as it'll take them. Um, That's fine. But what I would advise is that's a really bad idea and that there are reasons why you probably wouldn't want to do that. And if you actually do have a situation where there is a genuine market that can operate, that's probably going to reveal itself pretty quickly because you're just going to waste large amounts of your resources perpetuating wokeness instead of doing your actual job or producing garbage that's propagandist that nobody wants. Woke stuff's not very popular. You have to compel people to like it. And so they would go out of business, and they're welcome to make that decision just like anybody else's. If somebody wants to have an explicitly Christian business or an explicitly Scientologist business or an explicitly Buddhist business or an explicitly, you know, they make up their own religion in their garage business, explicitly flying spaghetti monster business, that's all well and good. And if they manage to run that in a way that doesn't alienate people and they can stay in business, that's capitalism, baby. But when you... Uh, so I would advise that they're not put into positions of power because I think it would be bad overall. It's a problem when everybody's doing it, though, because now you no longer have a free market. You have a captured market. Mm-hmm. When we move into the public sector, it changes entirely because now you have something that's an explicit ideological push. Mm-hmm. If you want, I can lay out – not now, but I can lay out an argument for how it's a religious push, which is expressly forbidden by 
um, the the First Amendment. Uh, but at any rate, I don't think it's the state's business to be promoting any particular, uh, you know, blatant ideology that rejects things like equality and neutrality to the greatest extent possible. Mm-hmm. So that would, in fact, define the difference between the liberal ethos and these other illiberal ethos approaches, which is that that they call for the maximum amount of neutrality that we can achieve, not attainable necessarily in practice, but that is what they're calling for. If you're calling for neutrality, equality, et cetera, where the state is acting in as neutral a way as possible, that's the kind of thing the United – and it, why why that? Why not something else? Because that's the way the United States was founded, and I don't think that we should throw the United States out. Uh, and, and remake it. The United States was founded on ideals of all men being created equal, etc. And I, my most conservative position on earth is if you don't like it, I feel like you should be free to go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm not going to say we should kick you out, but get out if you don't like it. Uh, if you can't you know, change it by means that operate within the system, I'm happy to see these people leave. leave. Uh, and you know, may they fare well. And some other, uh, what did Trump call them? Portland, Oregon's shithole countries. I mean, um, no, that's my most conservative position. And Hmm. but they're they're entitled. I do believe fundamentally that it is their right to believe whatever they want to believe. It's their right to speak about whatever they want to speak about. That should not be infringed. However, that does not give them that they are not entitled to a publicly funded and endorsed mouthpiece position where taxpayers are supporting this, where the state in some way or another is supporting this and endorsing this to promote an ideology uh, that, I mean, well, is, is, is as blatantly destroys education. As it is. We know that for certain. The, oh, the, yeah, absolutely. Like that Beaverton, that Beaverton meeting, they don't want to teach anymore. They literally don't want to do grading. They, they want to well, interrupt the entire thing. To teach Communism this. is basically a gigantic pyramid scheme for how do we get other people to do all of our work for us until the system collapses. So, yeah. <laughs> like, Word. it'll be great. Just you go grow all the grain and give us all the all the all the food, and then you know eventually it'll be awesome. I promise. Now to we'll do it again, you know, it, it's what it is. So you're right. They don't want to. They don't want to teach. They want to indoctrinate or reprogram. And then, I mean, this is a point that I raise very frequently: is that communism or wokeness or whichever one you want to pick, they don't build. They spend. And I don't mean that in the like, oh, liberal Democrats, you know, that whole like political rhetoric. They spend in especially social capital. Like Harvard has an awesome brand that it's built up over almost 400 years. And then like one or two years, it's like a clown college. They've just taken that, the, that all that capital, that social capital that they built up and just burned it out to try to push wokeness as hard as they could for two years. And uh, all it is is spend, 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 spend till it's gone. And then they move on to the next thing. And so decimating education or even just obliterating education in order to, to, you know, do whatever it is that they actually want to do, uh, I find to be absolutely unacceptable. I feel it's a betrayal of the public trust and what the public has said. Yeah, we need a Department of Education. Yeah, we need public schools. Yeah, we're going to pay taxes to fund these things. It's an utter betrayal. We're not funding people to, to fail in their mission on purpose. Um, that's right. James, you've dropped lately that you think the tide is turning. You think that the, they're yes. getting stung. Oh, yeah, that's my top, top down, bottom up part. So it ties all the threads together. So here's what I think. Because to say the tide is turning is it was to ignore the fact that we have woke military, which is 
properly horrifying. And then we have the rapid wokeification of medicine, which is going to cause the death of many people. I don't know if the number will be in the hundreds, the thousands, or the millions, but it's going to be a lot. It's not going to be good unless it gets reversed uh, quickly, and it won't. So the tide is turning. I mean, you know, I was at the ocean recently. It takes a long time for the tide to begin to turn, and then finally, like, the water is somewhere else. Like, you don't notice right away. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I perceive is happening is this this movement was meant to be top-down and bottom-up at the same time. We don't have to talk about inside-out. That's a different strategy, different aspect of the strategy. It was meant to be top-down and bottom-up. So this is actually where Wokel's thing really comes into this, where, you know, oh, well, it's government by the people. Well, what if all the people wanted to be woke? Well, then... There's a point here, right? All of a sudden, that's what the that's what the people actually want, and uh, this is why the religious designation is important because the state still can't sponsor a religion, even if we were 99%, you know, Protestant Christian or whatever it is. The state still can't sponsor that. Um, but what you have is that they have the top now. They had the bottom. Like culture went bonkers for a while and the bottom has fallen out and so now you know it's top down bottom up the idea is that you have if you have the top and bottom you can squeeze the middle right and that was what they're intending to do well that's so that's government power or institutional power that's the top pressing down and forcing people like a weight bottom up is grassroots that's almost your postmodern power where power works through everybody and but it's the grassroots that are pushing power up and so if it squeezes the middle then everything goes and that's the top down bottom up strategy well the problem is is that if you knock out the bottom and you make it so that the grassroots no longer accept this and this is what i think has changed i think that the grassroots hasn't just fractured, but that the the so-called silent majority is starting to realize that it's a majority, that it is like I've I talked to somebody recently. And one of the things that they mentioned, and it's a feeling that I've had for a while is, you know, when I jumped off the support networks appear all around you, you become a hero, you become amplified, you 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 end up all kinds of things, you might lose your job. So the top can still press down, but the bottom now, they've lost control of they don't have the grassroots. So if we think of that metaphor, though, of squeezing the middle, what happens? Well, you know, we can look at the, the Biden administration. We can look at woke military. They, they they haven't cottoned on to the fact that they've lost the bottom. They think they can still call everybody a racist or call everybody a fascist or say, but Trump or, you know, even like I just saw uh, David from from the Atlantic trying to argue that talking about the lab origin somehow plays in is like that just reinforces what a failure Trump's America first policy was or it's like they're just still trying to appeal to this stuff and nobody cares anymore except like a diminishing right. cult of people and so if you have I think I think of it like a box of bricks right and you're trying to squeeze it like a like a hydraulic press or something and you're going to smash all the bricks. Well, if, if if the bottom has fallen out of that, when they press down, all that happens is bricks fall out of the bottom even faster. And that's what I perceive is happening. Every time they try one of these ham-fisted things, like maybe it's a perfectly legitimate reason that they want to offer these lotteries to everybody. <laughs> you know, there's a lottery prize for everybody who got a vaccine. Maybe that's perfectly legitimate. Maybe they have done a cost-benefit analysis in whatever, like, pseudo reality they exist in and have decided that ending the pandemic under terms that they've accepted for themselves is cheaper than a two million dollar payout to some lucky winner of the vaccine or whatever and they think that there's some legitimate you know calculation where this makes sense however 
what it does is freaks everybody the hell out. They're like, why do they have to buy our compliance? What's really going on with this thing? And so when they press down from the top, bricks fall out of the bottom. And all I'm doing is it's like red pills falling from the sky all the time. And another way to put that is the bricks are just dumping out of the bottom of this chute. They're not crushing bricks anymore. The bricks are falling out of the bottom. And we are going to build that wall I don't know if that was a good way to end that. but No, that was great. That was excellent. I, that's I, really I, what I think is going on, though. The tide is turning okay. in the sense that you have pressure from bottom and top, and they've lost bottom. That's not yeah. a gay reference. That's that's true. They've, they've Even if it was happy anniversary. How do I say this? Uh, I, think, I think that's right. I think that the... Um, In the in the people in the institutions don't realize how despised this stuff is. They're, they're, they're not clueless. yet. A, they're they're not. They oh, don't understand how 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 when they say the white privilege, everyone just goes. Ugh. People start rolling their eyes. People are just like, if I didn't have to get fired, I'd get up and walk out of this room right now. Or Ukfei That's Uye. everyone. Yeah, they're just people are just not having it anymore. Um, I'm glad to have played a part in that too. I'm just going to say that. Oh, good job, James. Oh, I think. Yeah, well, I want to do. I want to do something. I had had, had a tiny little bit, but not as not as much as you, James. You did good, and Vocal, you've been doing great too. Exercising. I've been trying. I I think. So, um, they're still going to take more institutions because it's an institutional takeover machine, and that's already in. Yeah, we're looking at a decade of complete those, failure on an institutional level. I'm thinking. Yeah, you're going to. I think you're going to start to see the decentralization. Um, Coinbase has just released new te- uh, or has has started getting into the space of new technology to allow people to put on chain predictions and claims and then to see how claims those claims have been tested using blockchain to decentralize uh, legitimation of truth is going to be hmm. something that's interesting they've 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 lost the bottom, and they're going to continue to lose the bottom. And at some point, those institutions are going to start pushing away. David DeCosimo did a wonderful couple of threads the past couple of days talking about how uh, institutional institutional orthodoxy is enforced in the academy. And he did another thread that followed up on that. I, I think that somebody like him is going to be key for sh- for finding the the right balance and the right way to push back and start taking universities back, because I think the alumni are are going to start saying we don't want to be supporting this. So I think that it's going to take a while. We've got our work cut out for us. Mm-hmm. It might be a decade, but we're going to start seeing institutions have serious problems, and. They're going to start seeing people who used to show up and say, I, I saw this person show up and say, um, like you'll see people show up and say, I'm a doctor and I'm, and then they'll just assert their identity and then do something that's very, would be considered unprofessional for a doctor, but would be a part of that identity. So it would be like, I'm a doctor and I'm also white trash. And it's like, that's not a part of professionalism and being a doctor. Or I'm, I'm a doctor and I'm also 
and you could have like I don't know, um, someone, I don't know, behaving in a way that is consistent. The white trash, the equivalent of white trash for other various identities, right? Whatever that would be, I'm I'm not I'm not sure Latinx. how that would translate, but just something that wouldn't be, yeah, something that's not consistent with bedside manner, right? So, being a white trash redneck and acting like you're on Trailer Park Boys, is or in a country music video isn't appropriate bedside manner. But I'm a I'm a and I'm also whatever identity that is. That stuff is going to start to crumble and fall apart. That stuff's going to start to go away. And then the second thing I want to say is this, James, you made a point that. This week that the left moves dialectically, right? And I figured this out. When you jumped off the cliff of saying, I am no longer going to be a part of the very smart people and I don't care, you made yourself immune to the dialectic. Because the way that the dialectic operates is to push back and to say, ah, but I made this point and I make this point. And now you have to argue back with them and back and granting a point and giving a point, and they can absorb you into the dialectic as a part of the discourse and then just kind of move your ideas to the outside, spit it out, and just keep whatever tiny bits of what you said hmm. as part of their dialectic, of part of their wokeness, and say, look, we, we were taking very close uh, uh, stock of, of James's hoax, and we did this, and we did that, and we did this, and we did that, and they dialecticize your critique away but by saying nah i don't care i'm just going well what about this critique <laughs> your mom and just keep going and going and going <laughs> you remove yourself from the mm. dialectic i haven't taken that same approach because that's not I don't, I don't know that i'm i'm good at that i've taken a different approach and my approach has been to just tell people basically that this is what i'm doing i've even had job offers where i've said i've had conversations with people where i've said this is i am my, my i'm out as vocal distance well could you you know put on a suit and stop doing that no vocal distance and with the lights and the wait the, are you going the bandana the distance is that what you're saying it's i'm saying that we're that that i'm going to continue to operate as i have and i'm going to continue to to reject the dialectical offers to either engage in a sort of to allow myself to be neutered by the discourse to allow myself to be swept up and play hmm. by the rules of the discourse rather than say I will hammer it from the outside so when I, I was on Michael Knowles show uh, when I Whoops. was on Michael Knowles like, show through the wall when I was on Michael Knowles' show, I I went after because I felt it was appropriate. I went after the Lincoln Project and never Trump Republicans. I wasn't going to say, "Well, I'm on a I'm on a conservative show. I have to do that." Now, fortunately, I'm 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 happy that Mr. Knowles agreed with me on that. But it, I also called Trump a postmodern president, and I'm again. He said that he he agreed with that synopsis, but it might have been the way that he couldn't, or that he didn't. And a lot of people within conservative talk radio who are still in that old Bush paradigm would have said, well, you know, or or even a lot of people who support Trump would have taken umbrage to that, de depending on, on what view they're from. 
I've gone to great lengths, and part of this is coming from James, great lengths to say, I'm going to say what I think. I'm going to say what I believe. I'm going to speak honestly. And this is also a bit of Jordan Peterson. I'm going to not lie. I'm not going to say anything that I don't believe to gain clout or to gain value or to be whatever it is. Yeah. I'm going to call it as I see it. And if that means saying that Trump is postmodern too, then I'm going to say that. And if that makes the Trumpers mad, fine. If that means attacking the ever Trumpers, fine. If that means going after the woke, which it does most of the time, great. I like that part of it. But I'm not going to be forced to play ball in a way that doesn't allow me to tell the truth. Because the only thing that I have right now in terms of credibility is my honesty. That's it. And the fact that people know that I will say what I think. That's all I have. There isn't anything else that keeps my little boat afloat in the ocean of of YouTube and Twitter discourse. And I think that James has kind of paved the way for saying, I'm not going to be absorbed into your dialectic so that you can take off, spit me out and keep, and then say, look, we took stock of James's criticism. See, we, we took this one little thing that was compatible with our wokeness and we spit the rest out. No. No, I'm going to keep going. Because normally when they dialecticize somebody, when they say, yeah, when they say, hey, that was kind of racist. The person immediately stops and says, no, no, I'm not, and then blah, blah, blah. And James goes, you know that that wasn't racist, so I'm just going to keep going. And they're horrified. Wait, we suggested that you're intolerant. Yeah, you did. So I'm going to keep going. And and they, I don't think they've ever had to deal with that because everyone they've ever called out or approached, anyone who they've brought the call out to and then have socially reified their disapproval of that person. The person have always responded to the social reification of disapproval by backing off. And James said, I don't care. <laughs> and, and to break that and just have that be like, it didn't matter. This, this, that, that's been hugely important. It, James has rejected the dialectic. And just keeps pushing out and pushing out and pushing out and pushing out and pushing. So I don't think that you've done just a little. I think you've done a lot. I think you've brought the heat and the energy that was needed to push and pave the way and create enough of a crowd that other people can now jump. And that's going to allow us to gain critical mass. And that's the basis for movement. Crowds I like to push it, push just, it. The mm -hmm. center has never had activists proper before. Activist academics speaking honestly before. That's never existed. Right? We have that now. There's never been a centrist or conservative Frankfurt school. Or a, or a count. There's never been a counterweight to the Frankfurt school. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's, never been a, there's never been something to make new discourses uh, to deal with a, a Frankfurt school. And we have those things now. And a voice of reason. Speaking of which, what would we like to plug? What projects are you guys involved man, in? James, a, you have... That was a really open door, man. What would I like to plug? Are you kidding me? Oh, here we Oof. go. Easy Local's going to pour out the Slurpee on me in the name <laughs> of love. <laughs> that is a well, voice it's... of reason if I've ever heard one. <laughs> what would I 
like Vocal, do you, you have kidding? more videos coming down no, the pipes? No. You only have one on your tiny little channel. Yeah, I did the one. That was a oh, yeah, test. Your magic trick. I, yeah, yeah, the magic trick video. I've been working <laughs> on a book, and I continue to work on a book. And then COVID here kind of disrupted our ability to, to do what we needed to be done. So It's dismantling your, your success. And disrupting. That's true. And subverting. But man, I'm, I'm sitting at 43,000 followers right now on Twitter. So I did never expect it. I thought, when I first started up on Twitter, I thought I'll get 1,000 followers and I'll hang out in James's mentions and that'll be that. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh. So... Um, I'm working on my book um, that's going to provide us with tactics for people. Because right now, people are sitting there. We've, I think James is right, where people are real are just starting to crest and look around at Wokeness and be like, I don't think I like this very much. They have no idea how to push back on it yet. My damn website. Uh, <laughs> Nudist <laughs> New courses. courses. I've just put out my huge Huggle oh, podcast. Um I'm not working on any specific new book yet. Yeah. I think Vocal's going to come back with another axe. I mean, eventually I'm going to get talked into it. I have people kind yeah. of pushing on me uh, to try to do that. I had a week I spent with Stephen Hicks recently, and he's really into the idea that I wrote another book. So, you know, get Cynical Theories. You should read that. There's Vocal's modeling it for us. Um, visit my website. I'm not working on a new book yet. So, Go to my website. That's what I'm doing. Or come follow me on Twitter. So, because I'm like real close to passing Quillette. Not that I keep track of these things at all. <laughs> I'm real close to passing Quillette. And it would be really interesting to see what the effects of calling me the R word on Twitter has on things over the long term in the next, I don't know, no. 24 hours or so. Uh, so that's Conceptual James at Conceptual James on Twitter. Conceptual vocal Distance James. is vocal underscore distance on Twitter. I'm Benjamin A. Boyce on Twitter. Find me and my YouTube channel uh, that you're already watching. Or if you're listening to the podcast, or if you're watching the videos and you, you want to know, all these conversations are located on the Voice of Reason podcast. You can find that wherever you want to go. James, you have a podcast that pump, pumps it out weekly. Or something like that? Do you have a schedule? You just kind of show it's up. It's not and... quite a schedule. It's, okay. it's as they come out. I mean, I have I record. I've kind of had to slow down a little bit because I got a little bit manic with recording. I have two podcasts. One is public. It's the New Discourses podcast. You can find it on my website if you click on the audio tab um, or anywhere else you like to find podcasts. I have no idea how they're listed. Best of luck to you. And then I have... My private subscribers only or contributors only podcast, which is called James Lindsay Only Subs. Mm -hmm. So if you are a subscriber, you have access. Those tend to be shorter. Um, I often try to keep those between maybe 10 and 20, 25 minutes. Okay, the New sense. Discourses podcast. The Hegel one I just dropped is, as my audio guy has pointed out to me approximately 3 million times, it is 3 hours and 49 minutes long. Oh, so that's very Hegelian. That's it's kind of high, going high public tomorrow. It's available oh, wow. for subscribers now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I have those two podcasts, both through New Discourses. I also, Ben, uh, I plugged you on the Michael Knowles show. Oh, really? Yeah, that that explains those said, 20 more subscribers I've had. Okay, yeah. yeah my imagination yeah. is running wild right now. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> All right, I, I need to re up my oh. pain meds. So let's uh, let's have some post chat chat and uh, say goodbye to all the our all our fans Bye, out YouTube. there. Bye, you. Thanks, guys. Vocal, do you have a goodbye? Peace. Okay, peace. The